In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1668 to 1681. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1668 Story number one, Shock and Awe, written by Fox Corp. The trench line was manned with Kandari mercenaries, the most feared beings in the galaxy. Over the thousands of years since their discovery, they've offered up their services to anyone who could pay. Pirates, slavers, fascists, communists, liberations, republics, you name it, they fought for it. When trading clans of Agash decided several human planets were within their sovereign territory, it was these same Kandari mercenaries who answered the call. Upon realizing that it was the Kandari invading their planet, most species would simply give up. Humans are not most species. After a day of progress, the Kandari advance was halted completely. They'd successfully taken the majority of the second largest continent on the planet. They took over a region consisting entirely of flat, fertile farmland. Human forces regained control of nearly every forest and mountain range on the continent and also held defensive positions behind rivers. Up until this point, humanity hadn't fought back whatsoever. They simply entrenched themselves into defensive positions and waited for the mercenaries to overextend. On the second morning of the assault, overextension occurred. 100,000 Kandari charged across the new Mississippi after facing such little resistance in the previous days. Commanders were certain the human couldn't repel their forces. Humans gave them a helping dose of humble pie. In the shape of a depleted uranium round, that is. An entire battalion of tanks roared to life at once. The main guns sliced through the makeshift bridges while the coaxial MGs ripped any infantry on top to shreds. Artillery over 50 kilometers away began to rain hellfire down upon the troops stupid enough to retreat from the meat grinder that was the riverside. Humans emerged behind the Kandari lines and opened fire using crude slug slingers. The noise was unbearable. Every Kandari soldier who wasn't shot, drowned, dying or otherwise, was now completely deaf. Not even the thunderous roar of the human CAS could reach their ringing eardrums. With each volley of machine gun fire, every boom of artillery, every flash of flame from the rockets, every roar of the human infantry, and each gun run from the CAS, more and more Kandari were killed. After only 15 minutes, each of the 100,000 soldiers were dead or captured, and the human assault began. Across the entire continent, Kandari lines were rocked by thunderous artillery and rocket fire. Ammunition depots and supply hubs let up with magnificent explosions. Trenches caved in with their occupants still inside. The skies themselves filled with human bombers and fighters and the initiative turned. From the mountain ranger's armored bulldozers charged towards the Kandari lines. The trenches opened fire with lasers and plasma, but they couldn't stop the monsters hawking towards them. The trenches were paved over with blood-soaked mud, and the human advance began. In the beautiful riverside of the new Mississippi, human tanks and infantry crossed in mass. Any Kandari that tried to regroup or fall back was destroyed by the monstrous sound of the human CAS. 
the image of the ground being eviscerated was seen before the demonic sound brrrt. Trenches in other areas were hit by a terrible mixture known as white phosphorus napalm was also dropped right behind the trench line to prevent any possibilities of escape. Tanks and IFVs rushed the burning trenches and cleaned them up with a horrible efficiency. Across the entire front line, the Kandari had been completely pushed back. They retained control of a single urban area. Kandari mercenaries had already slaughtered the population as the trading clans demanded. This only sealed their fate. For two days, the humans did nothing but bombard the city back to the Stone Age. Booms of rockets could be heard every hour of the day. Artillery smashed into high-rises, buildings collapsed, gas lines exploded, pipes burst, and the rubble constantly shifted. The sonic booms of the gen bombers struck fear into the hearts of any who remained, not knowing where the next bomb would hit, but knowing that it would kill anyone it targeted. After the second day had passed, orbital reinforcements arrived. The Kandari cheered and celebrated, not knowing their fate had now been sealed. The ships were not friends. They were human. In one last act of absolute psychological torture, the humans sent their ships into the atmosphere. Some assumed a broadside position and began to bombard the rubble even more. In 30 minutes, the humans had used over 10 million shells of differing sizes to bombard the now smoldering ruins. After these 30 minutes were up, all bombardment ceased. The remaining mercenaries clawed their way out of the rubble to see what had occurred, only to find the spinal MAC of a human battleship staring them down. The last words of General Caledonus, as recorded by his data link, were, MAC rounds in atmosphere! The mighty human military doctrine was revealed to the galaxy. They called it shock and awe. End of story. Story number two. Respect the rules. Written by Kai Dobson. What is that planet called? The human pointed out a large triple-layered window to her right, beyond which was a beautiful blue-green ball that, without concentrated glance, reminded the human of home. That is the crown jewel of the Glibali Galactic Empire, Gibble spoke proudly. The second capital world of the Ginnablon. Shame, the human said, and as the translation Merchel spoke, the Gablali clicked his lower jaws in confusion. What do you mean, shame? Is it not a beautiful planet? It is. Is there a translation error? He asked. No, the human said, as she checked in subtitles that the module had typed out as part of the minutes for the meeting. No error. I said, uh, shame. How is it a shame, may I ask? Well, it is a shame because, like you said, it is a beautiful planet. But I'm afraid to announce that the humans are going to start calling it, uh, the Graveyard. The translation module worked at near-instant speed, but the words did not compute in the heads of the Glablali ambassadors right away, and they all looked down at subtitles to be sure what they had heard. Is that a translation error? Gibble said once again, but when the human looked over, she shook her head. No error, she repeated. 
You heard me correctly. Why would you consider this outstanding beauty a graveyard? Pay attention. Her hand moved to her stubbed lapel, and she spoke at it. Fire when ready. The human swiveled on her chair and faced the large window properly, and the three globali all turned to look as well. The confusion on their faces obvious even to one who had never met their species before. A blinding light from beyond the right side of the window illuminated the spacecraft hidden expertly by its stealth technology exiting out of warp. But it was already too late. The projectile that had fired the moment it materialized sped between the stealth craft and the planet in less than a millionth of a second, having been fired at just shy of the speed of light itself. The planet stood no chance. Its planetary defense weaponry was unable to defeat an enemy shot that moved so fast it did not even register on their system. The three globali began to scream unintelligible sounds as they watched their cherished world, their people, their families die without ever knowing what hit them. You offered us terms of surrender, but it was nothing more than slavery. We had our rules of war and you laughed at us. You glassed our worlds from afar like cowards and claimed our great victories and wrote songs about your bravery. Even now, you only bring me here to gloat before taking me to speak to your emperor, whom, by the way, has been taken into our custody as we speak. Glibul looked up at the human woman and cowered at the look in her eyes. She was fierce, angry, and powerful now. Gibble watched in horror as Gamma Blonde broke apart, the magma below the surface rupturing into space and cooling instantly into broken shards of what was once his home. Our species will live through this, the human said as she turned to look at the site herself. As long as you respect the rules. Men of Story Story number three. Terror, Destination of the Galaxy Written by Mecha Kid. She sat, rubbing channels on the view screen. Everything was so boring, and she felt like she needed a vacation. Suddenly, one of the commercials caught her attention. Tired of the same old shows? Feel like nothing is original? Yes? Well, come to Terra. If you like action or comedy, we've got something for you. Select from over 1,000 entertainment venues in over 100 different cities. See live performances written by the ancient masters. Interesting. He sat in the exercise room, idly lifting weights. They were too easy for him, but the facility didn't have anything heavier. Then on the screen he saw one of the toughest humans he had ever seen, and... That was saying something. The rippling muscles of the apex predator of Soul 3 instantly had his attention. Feeling like your world isn't a challenge anymore? Well, brother, check out Terra. We got it all. Lifting your thing, we can set you up with hundreds of kilos. And with a gravity of one and a half times galactic standard, you know you'll be getting jacked. Damn. That's a lot. But, brother, maybe you're a natural guy. You want to do it the original way. I feel you. We've got mountain climbing, endurance running, swimming, you name it. And our trainers can set you up right. He sat in the locker room, disgusted with the shameful list of opponents he had just defeated. No one seemed to be challenged for him anymore. He had expressed his boredom, but that was several cycles ago. Then he saw it, a vid pamphlet sitting in his bag, with a note from the coach to check it out. 
When he opened it, he heard strange sounds and a human in a simple robe greeting him with a bow. Hello, honorable sir. It is my pleasure to invite you to experience competition like you never have before. Come to Terra, where you can face the opponents of your dreams. The scene changed, showing the robed human facing off against not one opponent, but four. He moved with poise and grace that the warrior had never seen before, and as he delivered punishing blows, his opponents didn't relent, but returned for more. We offer both armed and unarmed styles and hundreds of different trials with which you can test your skills. Learn and complete in the martial arts of all humanity, Kenjutsu, Karate, Kung Fu, Queensbury Boxing, Kampfengen, Fencing. We have everything an honorable warrior such as yourself could desire. And another punishing hit from Dante of the Coronas Warriors. Speaking of Dante, how about a word from one of our sponsors? Howdy, Smash Ball fans! Obviously, sports are your thing, right? Well, Terra has all the sports you could ever want. Today on Let's Eat, we explore one of the hidden jewels of the Orion Arm, with sweets that can satisfy a hive queen, spices hotter than plasma, and saucers that could put even the Saurian into a lactic coma. This little blue-green world has it all. Book your trip today. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1669 The Star Tamers, written by Admiral Star Knight. Stars were not kind. This was a fact of life any space-faring race knew well. It was as common as the need to consume matter to survive. A star was not a friend. It was an object at the center of a system, boiling with barely contained energy and holding all in its influence like an animal, hoarding food for the cold seasons. Oh sure, every race was born from a star system, but how many more weren't? How many stars that had made planets kept them barren or destroyed them? How many races had died before reaching the darkness because their star had destroyed them? What about the stars that had died, flinging helpless planets into space? Or the ones that had turned to black holes, devouring the life around it? Living around a star was a basic necessity for some, and nothing more. Most of the time, it was because the food races consumed needed it to grow. Or even worse, the race itself needed starlight to survive. Of course, some races had found ways around it. By making artificial lights that produced the spectrum they needed, or by just straight up moving out of their home star systems into safety of the darkness around them. Starlight looked beautiful from far away. It was such a shame that it was so deadly. Alut shook her head and turned away from the viewport digitally projected into her quarters. Her fleet sat quietly in the calm of deep space in Port Alpha 4 on the Corewood side of the Yama Collective, her home nation. As a Yama, she was glad that her race was what one could consider an elder race. The few elite races that had completely forsaken living around the temperamental beasts that birthed them to live life in a solitude of space between them. Her kind did not need any close starlight to survive at all, not even artificially tuned light. Their food sources could grow in complete darkness, 
Their people did not live in the light of the stars at all, just the bliss of deep dark. She ran her hand, paw, over her desk, shaking out her fur as she felt the cool, smooth metal. As the hatch to her office opened, she turned perked ears on the young Yama and entered, panting from the fast run through the passages. Greater Lot, please come to the science deck. Researcher Gray has something to show you. And he could not have called me, Malat said. He says that he could not risk the call being silenced. The young Yama ruffled his fur. So he sent me to fetch you. Okay. Malat grabbed a sash of white fabric that denoted her rank as a great head of the fleet and trotted after a younger, wondering what would be so important. Entering the science deck, she was greeted by a rather tall and attractive Yama. His fur slick with healthy oils from a distinctive ear-shaped that could have made her swoon had she been in a mating cycle. Researcher Grey, what is the trouble? She asked as she walked up beside him. Grey seemed lost in his nuts, murmuring nonsense about blinking and variables that made no sense. She gently touched his shoulder, and he started, Oh, great a lot. I didn't expect you to come so promptly. It wasn't as truly urgent. His voice still sounded distracted. But you are here, so there's no need to delay. He motioned her to follow him, and he walked into a room that was pitch black, closing the hatch and sealing it. Great a lot, look at this. Suddenly, the room was full of stars. She had to blink her eyes to adjust to even this sudden change as a star field moved to specific pointed space. A certain set of stars Grey needed to focus on. But as he worked, stars vanished and the ones around her became larger, closer. Being a child of the great darkness between the stars, she did not care to see stars depicted as anything other than pinpricks or faraway smears of light. So once they were left with a single glowing dot about as large as her head, she couldn't help but subconsciously take a step away. She did not want to be close to one of these monsters, even virtually. Fate had other plans, apparently. As she watched Grey motioned to it and it dimmed. Then after a few moments it brightened again, then dimmed, then bright again. But this time it seemed to stay dimmer even as gaining back some power. What am I looking at, Grey? The star is brightness is fluctuating at strange intervals. At first I thought that it might be planets and have some large ones too, but then it got dimmer and the intervals changed in strange ways. So I believe that the star is dying, or more likely is dead. A lot perked up at that. Do you believe that the star made a nebula? We could go claim another one of those, if only to prevent it from forming more stars. She looked at the researcher. Maybe, Gray said evasively. The reason I was studying this one was because it seemed young enough that it shouldn't be dying. Perhaps it was even the right age to produce another race. Ah, a lot placed a pine paw on Gray's shoulder. You believe the star may have killed the race? Gray nodded. Yes, Platt. I believe it may have, and I know other races think it's strange, but when we uplift races to save them from the bright beasts that want to kill them, it is such a waste to lose them. So unfair to those minds that will never feel the cool embrace of the darkness. Well, we can bring the fleet there and jump to see if there are any survivors. It might be slim, but sometimes races understand their stars are hostile to them, 
and send out colonies that we can save before the home planet is killed. A lot patted his shoulder. Can I have the coordinates of the strange star? Yes. Bray seemed to brighten. Ears perking up as he took the data off the computer and handed it to her on a data chip. Could I possibly join you on the bridge uh, for the hyperjump? I do not see why not. Malat gave a nod and trotted out with the researcher close behind. The hyperjump her fleet executed was perfect, bringing the ships across the darkness in a mere moment from Port Alpha 4 to a place where the strange star was. All shields to maximum ready the defensive suites. Alat barked at her people. Any big debris or radiation flares from the star need to be contained and weathered. I do not think that there are hostiles in this arm of the galaxy, but uh, pirates can be cunning, and even younger races can be nancy about visitors. Gray watched the controlled chaos with wide eyes. This is a superbly run operation. I spend so much time in the science deck, I forget what it's like with the rest of the ship. Thank you, researcher. A lot couldn't help ruffling her fur and pride. The compliment was a basic one, but it made her proud of her people. There was a reason that she was a great, and that was one of them. Now, spread the fleet out and proceed in slowly. Look for any signs of fleeing habitats, especially cold sleep ships. New races love those things because they seem to be easy tech to make. So as the Yama fleet gently pushed in towards where the star should be, they were all riveted to their senses, on the lookout for any possible signs of life fleeing the death of the star. A lot settled into the comfortable pillow on the command platform above her people, using half of her attention to watch the aggregate data on her screen from all her ships, while the other half contemplated on if somewhat scatterbrained researcher Grey would be a good mate. She was so deep in these thoughts that she missed the first signs that something was wrong. It took Grey, kneeling down next to her to look closer at her screens, to snap her out of a daze and focus herself. And then she pinned her ears, eyes wide. A huge structure, no, not huge, ginormous. There was not a word a lot could summon to describe its size. She had read old stars that were larger than most, but this was something else. The place where the star would have been, there was a structure made of metals and alloys, dark and ominous. It wasn't a black hole. Her people would have told her if that second they jumped in if it had been. There was no nebula surrounding them to draw down for fuel and resources to suggest that it had gone supernova. What was this star they looked at? Some new type of beast to haunt her nightmares. A new way to stars had yet again tortured the fragile life that had lived among them. That is, uh, strange... Researcher Grace said into the horrified silence. It looks artificial in nature. An artificial type of star, someone whispered, sounding horrified. Why would anyone make a cold metal star? No, 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 no. Look, I, I know you all don't like stars, but as a researcher, I have to put that fear aside to study things that are dangerous so it does not kill us. He pointed a hand paw at the screen and it highlighted the structure in a temperature gradient. It was pretty warm and blazing hot in certain places. Notice the variations in temperature. Stars, of course, are not all the same, but they never look like this. We need to get closer. This is my fleet, researcher, Alot said. I will not throw them away to sate some need for frivolous data. Gray flattened his ears. I understand, Great Alot, but if we had found something new, we need to learn about it before someone else with less pure motives does. 
Alut sighed and nodded. That made sense. Some of the younger races were rather hot and brash. She could imagine a few rushing here to blow up the strange star and calls well. Who knew what that would happen when you induced the strange structure star to explode? This is true, researcher. Please, condense the formation and pull in close so that we may all jump out together if this proves to be volatile. The fleet smoothly joined back into a formation and began to close with the strange structured star. As they closed, it seemed to grow in size. An illusion of distance, but still mildly unnerving. Resolving more and more. There were differences. It wasn't smooth. Instead, it varied. With depressions and raised sections and... Antennae. And thick armor. It was like a station, but larger. Too large. Then suddenly a lurt rang through the bridge and a lot flattened her ears. This was going to be a death. She knew it. She should not have indulged in this trip. She was going to die with the wrath of an unknown star. A flare of energy from a portion, sudden and high, before it was cut off and suddenly there was another fleet of ships, strangely shaped and nothing like her own facing her. They were also smaller, harder to pick up, and she wondered for a wild second if maybe the star had learned to make weapons to defend itself. Stars, being wild beasts of the universe, were the fact of life. An intelligent star would be a nightmare. Greater lot, uh, a signal, a radio primitive, but we can read it, the Yammer at Com said. What are they saying? Uh, nothing yet, it's a program. Yes, a program. Uh, designed to adapt to our systems and translate their words. Uh, that is magnificent. I've never seen any of its kind so smooth and not hostile. A lot perked up at that, rising to her feet to look at the fleet facing her own and a visual display. Not hostile? No, uh, I ran the program, it contained isolated system, and it came back with a simple, Hello! Welcome to our home. We are humans. What are you? So we might save the race yet, researcher Grace said excitedly. Nalat waved her hand toward quite the mail. Reply with, Hello, we are the Yama. This fleet came here to check on your star as we noticed it was behaving oddly. She waited as the message crawled back across the distance. It was nice, she thought that despite trying to figure out what this massive structure was, a race would be here that seemed to want to talk rather than fight or flee. Reply incoming, it says, uh, Wow. The comms ever blinked, rubbing his ear. Uh, it's a computer reconstruction of our language, so it's a bit choppy, but uh, they're speaking to us now. The human said, um, Our star is fine. We have detected no oddities with it recently. Can we open an audio link with the FTL comm system? If they have computers figuring out our language this fast, then they must have something close to faster than light comms. You don't get software that advanced without serious hardware capacity. Alunt asked as she glanced over Gray, who seemed obsessed with all the data on her screens. I'll try one moment. The Yama took a few moments to adjust her equipment and tune it. But after that, her ears went up. Oh yes, they're willing to do audio link, though with no visuals. They don't want to scare us with the visual communication cues just in case, sir. Uh, the link can be opened by having your hand pour over your forward display. That is extremely polite of them. Gray looked up at Lot. Maybe my data was erroneous. This seems less like a race in trouble and more like an elder race. Calm, collected, and no star in sight. Putting down their stars so they may harvest its resources is definitely a sign that we may have another elder race to add to the collection. Alot nodded to Grey and motioned for him to back up. 
flattening some of her fur around her face before she waved her hand paw over the display to activate the live link. Hello, humans. I am Greater Lut, leader of the Yama fleet. We were brought to this location because one of my top researchers saw something happening to your star, and we wanted to check to make sure the star would not harm anyone, she said. A second after she finished a voice that was speaking her language, yet definitely wasn't Yama, replied, Great a lot! Welcome to humanity's home system. I'm sorry if you've wasted time, but our star is perfectly fine. I'm not sure where you would have been or how properly conveyed distance units to you without taking too much of a collective time, but I assure you whatever you saw was simply a byproduct of space being a bit strange. May I ask what you've done with your star? This strange structure star that sits behind you has to be the most exotic star that we have ever encountered, and even as creatures of the great darkness, the Yama have seen many different stars, she asked, hoping the natives would know more about their own star beast. Then they could explain it to her, and maybe they could work together to neutralize it. The silence stretched on for longer than was comfortable. Malot shot a glance at the comms Yama, who flattened her ears and shook her head. No clue why the silence. The link was still active. The humans just weren't talking just yet. Uh, great a lot. Uh, this thing behind my ships isn't a star. Then what in the name of the void is it? She asked, somewhat exasperated. We are here to help you, and if the star thing is a danger, we can help you neutralize it. Then your race will be free to roam the great darkness with the rest of the galaxy. You think that stars are dangerous? The voice sounded genuinely surprised by this even through whatever program was translating their language. She flattened her ears. Every race, new and old, had always feared the stars. When you needed to rely on it for food, warmth, planets, and power, it was more than an abusive relationship. Oh sure, it was possible that you would be treated well for a very long time, but eventually the star would lash out with a solar storm or grow old or die, causing irreversible damage and death. Stars were always the enemy, from when races were mere hunter-gatherers trying to appease the bright god in the sky, or races like Yama, who had destroyed stars like sick animals to prevent them from hurting other races. The stars were not their friends. Of course, how can you not know that? They can wipe you out in a second, even in the early development races have to rely on them. A solar flare or just an old star can wipe out everything you know and love. Every race that can flees to the great darkness between the stars so their children can grow in peace. Alot explained. There was no way that she was going to consider this humanity an elder race now, if they didn't know what even the smallest Yama grasped at a young age. Oh, what air mix do you breathe? The question caught her a bit of guard. Nitrogen and oxygen with a few smaller percentages, like carbon dioxide and argon. You breathe what we do then. Are you carbon-based? Yes. Then I believe you will be safe to come aboard if you have a shuttlecraft. If you still feel unsafe, you can wear a suit. But we trust that your spacefaring race, you understand cross-contamination safety risks. She looked at a display. A small dot appeared on a giant metal star ring behind the fleet. Send a shuttle here. We have room for anything up to one of your ships being able to land. But I think that we've seen a few supply shuttles winging through your ships that will fit just fine. Okay, she was impressed by their observation skills, if nothing else. Gray, come with me. We are going over to this, uh, thing to find out what these humans have done with it.
as she stepped out into the shuttle bay. It was clear of other active craft, but the ones she saw stored against the bulkheads were neat and clean. It wouldn't look out of place in one of the great Yama space stations, except Yama tended to build more compact. The bay just looked lavish at this scale. Thankfully, the lighting seemed turned down fairly low, and she appreciated that from the race that knew nothing of how eyesight worked. Gray followed her off the shuttle carefully, looking around with flat ears and wide eyes, and a lot motioned with her head to walk over to the creature, standing at a respectful and safe distance. They crossed the distance easily to get their first look at a human. They were about the same height, but the human lacked any body fur, instead having some on its head that was long for decoration, she assumed, and garments that covered her bare, dark brown skin. She didn't know if she could ID a gender or if this race had such a thing. The human, who was respectfully keeping her eyes downcast, probably in an effort not to give the wrong visual cues, finally looked up and met her gaze. Welcome to Seoul, Greater Lot, and... They were still speaking in that program she assumed through the hidden speakers. She could understand them perfectly. Researcher Gray, the one who convinced me to come here and investigate. I thought that he should see this since he is more adept in all things science. And Researcher Gray, they repeated. I'm Ambassador Jean Issa. I do hope that you don't mind our race's visual cues. We usually look each other in the eyes when we talk. That is fine, Ambassador. It seems our languages mesh very well, given how easy it is for you to make a translation program. We'll ignore any visual cues that seem off for now, as we are very, very curious as to what is wrong with your star. Why can we stand on it? What's happened to it? She asked. Follow me. It's better shown from the inside than explained. Jean turned and led the way out of the shuttle bay, through a winding set of passages that seemed to stretch on forever before they finally got on a lift and began to ride to wherever Jean was hiding the answers to their questions. Gray asked the occasional question about a human word or marking he saw on the walls, and the bits they learned weren't terribly fascinating to her. A fleet great grew up on ships and knew that even though the colors and symbols were different, they were all things like directions and labels for emergency supplies. The lift slid to a gentle halt, but the door did not open. Jean seemed to be thinking something over before she looked at a lot. How much light can your eyes handle? Some. We do tend to prefer dimmer environments, but we don't need complete darkness. We might live out in the great darks, but we do have light out here. A lot answered. Then we guessed right. All right, uh, I assumed by your lecture about stars that you know not to look straight into it, but please don't make yourself blind, the ambassador warned. Before Alot or Grey could argue or ask, the lift doors slid open. Alot stepped out onto the warm grass gently swaying in the breeze, while the scents of the unfamiliar plants and animals tickled her nose. She was used to the recycled air of her fleet. Such warmth in nature was foreign to her. Her eyes looked around the darkened landscape stretching off into the forever distance in a curve that spoke of how continuing way beyond her eyesight. A city sat glittering with lights ready for the incoming darkness far below them. Sitting on the edge of what she could only describe was a vast amount of water. A sea? An ocean? She didn't know. But it was what was in the sky. She glanced at it for a mere second, the reddish orb half covered by a cloud. But even that made her blink to try and rid her eyes of the aft image. 
A star! Gray gasped. What? Why, what have you done to it? He sounded almost awestruck, though she could see his ears flattening in fear. Nothing really, Jean replied. This, uh, my dear Yama friends, is the Sol Dyson Sphere, a way to harness this much energy from our star. We call it our sun, as possible. So, the structure you see, they motioned around with a hand, is a great structure you saw coming into the star system. This is what humanity lives on. Where are your planets? No star that we've ever studied has ever formed something like this, Gray pointed out. Jean shrugged. Amazed that they had much body language in common, she could see the emotion in it. Oh, we had planets. We deconstructed all of them to build this. Uh, even our home planet and its moon had to be sunk into the effort. It was worth it, though, to harness the complete power of our sun. They looked up as the sky finally darkened to the point that the sun was just a milky white orb in the sky that was safe to look at. Layers of shields in the sky to protect the ground from vacuum, solar flares and simulate weather patterns can be darkened and lightened at will to simulate a 24-hour day-night cycle. Plants and animals grow all over the inside of the Dyson Sphere, mild and domesticated alike, with climates that suit all of them perfectly. Certain parts of the sphere are dedicated to harvesting the energy of the sun and have less plant life, but uh, are just as important. And uh, you just let it sit there? A lot asked in horror. You built a... a sphere around it and you pulled all your population under its light. Why? Why take that risk? I don't know what your race's history, Great Alot, the ambassador said respectfully, but we humans tend to have a great reverence for our star. It made life possible on our home planet, and when it came time to leave it, the sun had provided us with many other places to settle. The sun is dangerous, yes, but no more than any other force out there. Vacuum is still deadly, as would be a stray asteroid, or a hostile alien fleet, or any host of problems space can make for intelligent life. The human looked at the dim sun with a smile. So we thank our sun by surrounding her, protecting her, loving her. And in the far future, when it is time for her to die, we will leave. Jean looked at a lot with the same smile. There are other stars that we can build these Dyson spheres around. Other planets we might settle, but this sun will always be the great provider of humanity. We do not hate our sun. We love her, so we build a sphere around her. Grey and Alot were dead silent on their trip back, only giving short goodbyes to the ambassador before climbing back onto the shuttle to leave. They stayed silent while the shuttle docked and the fleet turned to jump back to Port Alpha 4 to report what they had found. Alot did not object as Grey followed her into her office and slumped down on the guest pillow, eyes wide yet staring into the distance like he wasn't seeing a world around him. She walked over to the projected viewport and stared at the starlight, so cold, so dark, so beautiful, and thankfully, so far away. Tamed! Alot turned to Grey as he looked up at her. What did you say, Grey? They aren't an elder race at all. They aren't new. They aren't anything we know. He sucked in a breath, his eyes filled with a strange mix of fear and awe as he stood, placing his hand paws on her shoulders and stared directly into her eyes. They are something different, Alot. So different from everyone else. Alot flattened her ears. What are they then? Humanity did not flee, did not destroy, did not bow to their star. They surrounded it, penned it in, used it. They... Uh, 
tamed it. He punctuated each word with a strange ferocity before letting her go and a lot let out the breath that she had been holding as the researcher stalked out of her office, ears still flat in fear. So the galaxy had a new race to deal with. Humanity. The Star Tamers. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1670. Story number one. Taking him home. Written by Kai Dobson. Sir, what are you doing? Gaia to Hermes. What is your situation? Hermes to Gaia. Mr. Speckman is trying to take off his helmet. The stunned silence in the control rooms up on the superstation, orbiting the moon and on the back of the surface of the earth, hit Arin like a well-struck baseball. For every possible contingency of things going wrong, as the mission director, he had someone in both rooms who was the world-class expert in unfucking the situation. Except for this, apparently. Earth to Gaia, ready the QRT for possible assistance with the Hermes crew ASAP, Arin ordered. And without reply, he could see the Gaia Quick React team spring into action. Moments later, the video footage from the Hermes craft finally settled, and the whole world could see just what was happening through the wormhole on the alien planet Mr. Speckman had been picked for their first extrasolar foray. The billionaire who had been on the forefront of the entire boon in space exploration over the past eight years had fully pulled his helmet off before the atmosphere sensors had compiled the data to see what elements made up the gases around them. It pinged moments later, and Earth confirmed that it did not have the right combination for humans to breathe. Except Mr. Speckman was taking a full, deep breath. Ah, oh, I've missed the smell, he said, the microphone by his neck still picking up every sound that he would make. The nitrogen count is so high, it made me feel sick all that time. But this... He took another deep breath through his nose before opening his eyes to look at the captain of Hermes 2 mission. Thank you, Lizzie. He smiled, a dastardly smile. But I'm afraid this will not be a giant leap in mankind hopes it to be. The rocks that surrounded their landing area moved, and Lizzie realized that they were fake. They had been camouflaged to hide well-armored soldiers... They trained their weapons on the two humans, and Lizzie put an arm out in front of Huskell, both to make him feel safer and to make them edge back towards the Hermes craft. This planet that you so rigidly called Glace 581C is what my people call the Barrier. There we have it, Aaron said as he turned the black-suited group in the corner, who nodded back at him. My real name is Alasumi Spekmagati. The being claimed as his skin began to shed its Caucasian features. His nose fell off and revealed the snake-like slits that fluttered to remove the fake skin that had covered it. His skin was dark brown and layered in scales. Therefore, Alan Speckman seemed appropriate. We did wonder what you really were. I bet you... Alasumi Speckmagati paused as her words registered in his mind. You did what? We all knew something was wrong the moment at that first speech. The, the first speech? You came out of nowhere, had no family that anyone could trace, and were suddenly impossibly rich through uh, lucky investing, and were then proposing wormhole travel to extrasolar planets. Lizzie said, Why not just build a permanent wormhole to Mars and call it a win? No. You kept pushing for this extrasolar mission, and so we just went along with it. 
You united all of humanity's space agencies into a singular and powerful force for the sciences and technologies. You gave us breakthrough after breakthrough. You didn't think that we would find that suspicious. You knew all this time. Why not arrest me? Interrogate me? Look around. Lizzie vaguely gestured to the planet that they were on as soldiers began to approach hesitantly. You've pushed the peak of human technology far beyond what we could have discovered within the next half a millennia, and we've still got all your notes back on Earth to rifle through. But, but the alien was dumbfounded. He had pushed too hard and too quickly. Now where were we? With wormhole technology, and we're mere moments away from perfecting FTL technology, we don't actually need you anymore, so why not bring to the place that you were so desperate to go? We guessed that it was your home world, or one your species controls. It is. And now what? You subjugate us, or you reveal your alien nature and make first contact. Uh, both? Alasumi Spekmagachi started. My mission is to bring you into the fold and have your people bolster our army to take over the galaxy. Why not just ask for our friendship? That was not my mission. Should have just made us your friends. A wormhole appeared under the feet of the two humans, and they fell through to safety back on the Gaia Superstation. Before Alasumi Spec Magati and his fellow soldiers could do anything else, the Hermes craft exploded and threw the aliens backwards. When the ringing in his ears stopped and the dusty smoke began to clear, Alasumi Spec Magati looked at the wreckage and back at the other soldiers in defeat. Shit! End of story. Story number two. The Impalers, written by Flaming Raven. It was a small, backwater world of little importance. Its name was Sylvanus, a Terran forest world. We had previously owned this world, before the humans joined the Galactic Senate. Then, it became part of their territory. We wanted it back. These were, after all, primitive apes, who shot themselves into space. Yes! Shot. The Terrans had never developed anti-gravity technology. Instead, they brute-forced their way through their own atmosphere. We believed that we were far superior to these humans. After all, they were puny and frail compared to us. They had no intimidating qualities whatsoever. Nor, so I thought. It was a war, just like any other. Our men died... Their men died. Then my division, the 113th Shalage Corps, made landfall on Sylvanus. Dense woodlands pocketed with brief fields and settlements. The battle for Sylvanus was not waged against Terran army of any renown. Instead, they chose to form a militia. Militia! The gall of such a pitiful race, thinking civilians with sharpened sticks could challenge us. Months by. We were advancing at an exorable pace. Then the report came in, sent by a laser transmission. Nelagata. For those reading this who are not of the Stasharoth, Nilgata is the name of an ancient Stasharathian legend. And Nelagata was a demon who sought to bring death to any near it. A demon of war! Of death! I sent a scouting contingent to the last known coordinates the transmission came from. The vid feeds came back. I'd never seen anything like it. Not even amongst war criminals from across the galaxy. 
We were missing some hundred soldiers. They'd gone missing sporadically, one or two a day. We found them. Remember those uh, sharpened sticks I mentioned earlier? The Terrans had set up a field of some odd hundred soldiers, impaled on massive wooden spikes. Some are still alive, others long dead. The humans who decided to implement this have evaded arrest, but has been identified. His name? Doran Tepes, apparently. And this is a rumor, mind you. He can trace his family tree all the way back to a man the humans called Vlad Impaler. To any and all reading this after-action report, if you value your sanity, do not attack the humans. They are a people of death and terror. They will bring unspeakable cruelty upon your peoples. Beware the terror. Beware the impalers. General Sultan of the Stasharathian Hegemony, 212th Calcutta Division, formerly of the 113th Shilich Corps, transferred after complete destruction of core structure. We of the Stasharathian Hegemony acknowledge that Sultan had a mental break sometime during the morning war. His account of events is already being speculated by members of the Department of Truth. Please, if you find anyone reading or speaking of this account, please report them to the nearest DOT representatives. Thank you for your compliance. Stashira stands strong. End of story. Story number three. Magic and Humans. Written by IMOE Reset. Magic. The ethereal force that allows all sapiens to manipulate the elements to their liking. It is a primary drive of all sapiens and the development of their civilization. It was simply fact that magic was everywhere in the galaxy. Well, uh, everywhere except Sol. You see, Sol has one peculiarity. Scans from our prophecies indicate that magic was present in the system once but then it was used up and never replenished. This has a lot to do with the residents of Sol, namely the humans of Earth. Yes, Earth, the ground we step under. Don't ask me why they named their planet with that name. The humans used magic wantonly, with acts of magecraft and miracles. They used it either for power or development, not unlike others. But the magic in their system was scarce. And it was used up. So they turned to the only path we did not even know existed. Technology. What is technology? Technology is the usage and development of tools to achieve a certain purpose. From as simple as cooking food, to as complex as traversing the stars, without the use of magic. As the humans have done with the Alderaan Horic Drive. Humans were introduced into the galaxy without the arcane arts. And they were flooded by questions. How did they get out of their system? Or even planet without magic? How do they do anything without magic? And that is where humans introduced us to technology. Now mind you, we didn't shun them. After all, mages are natural scholars. And we mages are curious about everything that we don't know about. So what if the humans didn't use magic? So what if their starboid ships look and operate differently? It was an entire new world for us, and magic was an entire rediscovered world to humans. You see, 
Myths and legends don't come from nothing. And although many things and tales in human mythologies and fantasy are entirely made up, most of it are still real. So upon the rediscovery of magic, humans, to borrow the phrase from them, went ham. Now it is not uncommon to see Chinese humans standing upon flying swords, or Greek humans wielding the elements of their favorite mythological god, or even humans using magic alchemy to attach or transform part of themselves to match the descriptions of their creatures of fantasy, like angels and werewolves. Humans are also great at magic loopholes, for example, there was a human necromancer who raised other necromancer as undead, and now he is considered a magic weapon of mass destruction by the galaxy. But it doesn't end there. Humans having developed technology naturally combined the two, and so now humans have the strongest military in the galaxy. No need to fear though, they are very kind. But if there is one phrase of theirs that strikes me, it is the any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hmm, yes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1671. I can do this. Written by Lagger CZE. Sahali watched, standing beside the general, as the humans entered their encampment. Part of her wondered why they were permitted to do so at all. They were frail creatures, not suited for the heat of combat. They lacked the speed and precision of her own kind, the resilient nature of the dwarves and the cunning that came so naturally to the ratlings. Even the sheer ferocity of oxmen, humans, were weak. This was no place for them. And yet, here they were, accepted among the ranks. The general could scarcely afford to be picky now. Mere days before the battle that would decide all of their fates would take place. He humored the offer these humans had made them. A mere sixty men and women, some already with grey in their hair, while others were barely old enough to be called children. They bore no swords or bows and rode no steeds, carrying with them nothing but one ragged banner, a watchful crimson eye shining on a deep blue background. They didn't even march, Though they centered themselves around their banner, it was obvious these were no soldiers. The wary glances some of the young ones gave to the few warriors they gathered to observe their entrance spoke volumes. There was a fear in their expressions and body language, coupled with awe and marvel at the size of the army around them. Young looked to their elders for comforting words, their uncertainty radiating for all to see. Sahali's own expression hardened as she glanced over the camp, seeing the countless soldiers who would rush into battle without fear the next day. Thousands joined this mad endeavor, the last real attempt at turning the tide against the undead legions. It would not be easy, not by a long shot, but they were ready. 18,000 elves, 12,000 dwarves, and almost as many oxmen and ratlings the biggest force amassed in over 500 years since the Alok the Great laid siege to the Karthai. She sighed. Who cared for a few misplaced humans? They had a battle to plan. The men were ready, the plan was in motion, and the fighting had begun. 
Captain Sahari looked over her shoulder, watching the hundred she was assigned, steady themselves for what was to come in the cold night. They were the best of the best, veterans against the undead and the living alike, with enough war to their names to warrant a dozen battle ballads to each of their names. From across races, she'd handpicked those brave and bold enough to lead this mad charge, as had sixteen other captains. Together, they would spring an ambush worthy of Alvin tacticians from before the fall. Her group was laying on the edge of what would soon become a battlefield, using a terrain depression for cover. If everything went well, the main battle line would falter and begin a hasty retreat, baiting the undead into pressing them and placing themselves between the scattered flankers. In just a couple of short minutes, her unit would be one of the many to assault the enemy's backlines in hopes of shattering them before they could regroup. It was a bold plan, a gamble, but it was the best chance for this world as she knew it. She turned her look in the battle's direction. The flames were getting closer, as was the noise. With every passing moment, she felt less like a bat in the night and more like a watchful hawk in a broad daylight. The light unsettled her. If they were spotted, if they lost the element of surprise, the enemy would simply annihilate them all before the main force could turn around. The faces of her men remained unwavering through it all. Sahari knew far too well that they were having the same doubts that burdened her, but not one dared to show them. Instead, they all watched the battle unfold, waiting for their signal, waiting for the moment that would shape their place in history. She put one of her pointed ears to the ground, listening distractedly to the tremors caused by thousands of warriors in full plate. Their moment was approaching. Her imagination ran wild, throwing around pictures of both glorious victory and bloody death, fueled by the faces of her men. Of these grizzled veterans, dying with blades ran through them and arrows in their back, that dwarven berserker decapitated in one foul blow, that rattling bleeding out amidst the advancing enemy, that human... Sahadi did a double take. A sole human girl was curled up near the edge of the group, hands gripping tightly on a metal rod the captain could only assume to be her weapon. She was far too young to be here, unprotected by armor and petrified by fear. With a mixture of curiosity and anger, she moved towards the girl, staying low to avoid being seen. The heavy boots she wore kicked up pieces of dirt with every step, eliciting looks from the men she led, but the captain cared nothing for their stares. She dropped on her stomach next to the little girl, a stone-cold expression on her face. This child was not supposed to be with them. Propping herself up in one hand, she grabbed the girl by the shoulder, prompting her to finally notice the armored elf next to her. Sahari found the human to be quite odd, if not too dissimilar from an elf. Her features were soft, were a human, a rounder face than most, and definitely more round than that of any elf, framed by a light brown hair tied into a braid, though the dirt and mud had taken a toll on the color. The girl's tiny nose snapped between two steel-blue, fear-stricken eyes, accompanied by worried wrinkles drawn across her forehead. She was terrified. That much was clear. Her slim figure was clad in deep blue robes with crimson lining, surprisingly reinforced by careful concealment studded leather in several places. Years of military life made the captain to appreciate the subtlety of which she had protected 
all the places that mattered. It was far from sufficient, especially on a real battlefield, but it must have given the wearer some semblance of comfort. However, she could not find a single weapon besides the odd metal rod in the girl's hands. It was quite the curious item, from top to bottom, covered in runes and intricate decorations, obviously not made for slashing, but for causing blunt force trauma. The weapon almost seemed ceremonial. Foolish humans, they did not understand that war was not about looking pretty. What are you doing here? She hissed at the human in a tone slightly sterner than might have been appropriate for someone of the girl's age. Through her anger, she hadn't noticed the girl shivered at her words and blinked in fear. Her lips parted as she tried to answer, Hi, hi. The girl's voice failed her and she closed her mouth, unable to tear her eyes from the scarred Alvin captain and the armored hand that was holding her shoulder just a little too tightly. She seemed to shrink under Sahali's glare almost as if she was hoping to disappear. What are you doing here? The elf repeated, noticeably less furiously. There was no response as the human refused to face her, turning her eyes to the ground instead. Well, she insisted, shaking her to reinforce the point. The, they, they, they sent me to help, the girl managed. There was a moment of silence while Sahadi considered the sheer madness of those words, followed by a stream of rushed half-sentences from the girl. I, I, I can help. We, I, we... We were sent here to make sure that you can win. I, I, I can do this. Her rambling went on for almost a minute before the human took a sharp breath, steadying herself somewhat, and started all over, all under the elf's watchful and increasingly agitated gaze. I'm M Margaret, apprentice to... Sahali raised a hand to stop her. Then she watched as the elf carefully picked over the edge of the little trench that they were hiding in, then looked back down at her, in a tone that begged exactly zero questions. The captain spoke the only two words that could solve anything at the moment. Stay down. She turned away from the girl, watching as the undead surged past them and gave chase to the retreating army. All that was left now was to give the signal and spring the trap. Any moment now. Sahadi's hand almost instinctively found its way above her head, frozen in anticipation of the signal that she was about to give. The horde of undead in front of them kept moving, unaware of their presence for now. Only a few more seconds until the heavier, more resilient armored corpses passed them. Then she turned and locked eyes with her second-in-command, a bearded stout dwarf. He gave her a clear, heavy nod. Her hand flew forward in a universal signal, and though her thoughts weren't focused on saying the word, she could hear her own voice screaming at the top of her lungs, CHARGE! And with that, they all leapt over the edge, up and forward into the fray. The air grew full of battle cries, some prayers to God, some promises of blood, and yet more simply loud roars of rage and hatred. Sahali savored the moment, rushing forward, wind blowing into her face and the familiar weight of her own blade comfortably in her grip. To her right, she could see those of her men who had carried shields raise them to cover their faces and accelerated even further. It was madness, bloodthirsty fury taking her, and she didn't even care. They crashed into the horde of undead. It was a sight to behold, a hundred against thousands, yet the wedge of living cut through the dead like a knife might cut through butter. But not one undead in their way was left standing. Some fell by blades and others simply thrown to the ground, still thrashing around uselessly. 
There wasn't a warrior who hadn't bloodied their blade in the first few seconds. Zahadi placed herself at the tip of their charge, leading as an example to all. No undead could match the prowess of a skilled swordsman, much less an elf in their prime. Her own blade buried into one walking corpse after another, severing limbs and tearing into rotting flesh, turning away the occasional retaliatory blow with a kind of practice few could claim to possess. The dead tried to claw at her, launch themselves at her, even bite, but always she had one step ahead, gracefully dodging and weaving her way through the horde. With every move, her ears were rewarded with the sound of either metal against metal or ripping flesh. And yet, another corpse was returned to its rest. But there was another to take its place. They fought everyone under her command with the strength of a mountain bears and bravery shared only by the heroes of old legends. But even then, Sahari lost count of the undead she felt today. She knew that it would not be enough. It would never be enough. Another corpse swung at her in a wide arc, its sword splitting the air, thick with the smell of blood. She blocked with so much as a flick of the wrist, forcing the weapon aside, then followed up with a low slash that nearly cut the cursed monster in half. A second later, she had already freed her weapon and jammed it through another, using the body to knock away the incoming attackers. She spun on her heel, trusting the steel to cut a torn armor hanging around the next undead's neck. It bit through with a satisfying crunch and sent the creature down to the ground. Followed shortly by another Sahali cut the sword arm off of, the field ran slick with blood of her enemies. And it still wasn't enough. She could see the first of her troops overwhelmed, the dwarf in heavy armor swinging his mace left and right in an infutile attempt to keep some of the undead away while he took one blow after another on his shield. His expression spelled resolve, but it wouldn't be enough. Not now, not ever. Sahali screamed something, not even she was sure what, when the man finally disappeared under the avalanche of the undead. With a newfound fury, she threw herself at the enemy. She fought with the ferocity of a cornered animal, caring not for her own safety. All that mattered now was bloodshed and rage. She turned away another assault, sliding her own weapon down the hill to the corpse's own, then slashing across its chest. But even then, her eyes were already on another, and then her blade was through its gut, and she had to kick the next one away before she could swing at its neck and decapitate it. But there were more, so many more. Then something hit her leg and she fell, still swinging away at the monsters that surrounded her. Deep down, she knew it was it that now she would die. Still, she turned away the blows that were aimed at her head, giving it her all until the very last moment. The blade fell. She watched it draw close. Only, something happened instead. It was no more than a flash of blue light, but the pain she anticipated didn't come. The blade and the undead that bore it were gone, flying off to the side like an invisible bull had tackled it. Sahadi could only gape at the empty space that housed her death just a moment ago, frozen in surprise. Then another blue uh, something hit the undead next to it. It fell over, landing motionless in the mud. Then another, and another. The captain scampered backwards, gripping her sword tightly. She was utterly confused. The company had no archers with them. It couldn't have been any of hers. 
So who was it that saved her life? And what in the hell was the blue light? It was all so strange, it boggled her mind. High on adrenaline, as she already was, the rational, more careful part of her mind told her that whatever it was should be as far away as possible. But her only immediate reaction was the kind she couldn't fight. She glanced to the left, back towards the trench they came out of, only to gawk in surprise. A small, unimpressive human girl clad in blue and crimson robes stood there, holding the ornate metal rod in her hands. But it wasn't the same terrified little thing that she told to stay down. She was no longer shaking, and the only thing left in those blue eyes of hers was steel. More interestingly, both ends of the weird metal thing she carried into battle, the same one Sahadi had deemed useless earlier, were now glowing, with blue light no less. The elf had to blink away the light, only to realize that it wasn't the weapon that was glowing, but rather the symbols on it. She watched petrified as the girl moved her weapon back and forth and bolts of pure blue light streaked to the end of each swing. The bolts moved almost faster than the eye could see, falling out dead in droves and never once missing. She could see the girl purse her lips and direct the deadly projectiles to those undead that threatened to get close to her, focusing solely on keeping the captain alive, only to turn away in less than ten heartbeats and place a perfect shot over a dwarven warrior's head saving him of an untimely end at the hands of the undead. It was unbelievable. Sahali was certain she did not believe her own eyes, and yet, here she was, saved from the death by a human girl wielding a weapon her mind could not hope to understand. It was too amazing to be true. No, she had to be dreaming, dazed from having a sword run through her guts, and this was a final fantasy her own mind comforted itself with before she would die. As if to bring her from her mistake, the girl suddenly stopped throwing around light and turned to clasp her hands together. Only, she did not, instead seemingly wrestling with some incredible force pushing back against her. A small light formed out the thin air right in the middle, then grew and grew into the size of an apple, then the size of a man's head, then grew some more. With an unintelligible shout and visible effort, the human released the ball, somehow throwing it into the mass of undead. It soared through the air, flaming as it went over the heads. Sahali felt hot air against her face when it came nearest in its path. And then it landed, somewhere far into the undead, and the elf felt heat again as she watched it explode. Flames erupted in the place of the ball, so hot they seared the corpses around, and so intense they burned away the grass below in an instant. Those undead too close to be lost simply disappeared, while others were torn to shreds and more yet thrown aside like ragdolls. It was a simply magnificent sight. So much power packed into so little space. Sahari couldn't help but gawk, first at the explosion, then at the girl. Before her eyes, the girl fell to one knee, signs of exertion strewn across her face. She was panting, holding on to whatever that weapon of hers was for support, strength obviously depleted by whatever she had done. Her hair fell into her face, obscuring her expression. It seemed as if she was about to collapse at any moment. The captain instincts kicked back in just then, forcing her back to her feet and into a fighting stance. Her own body ached, but she didn't care. Somehow that little human girl gave her hope, 
hope that whatever force she commanded would turn the tide. Back! She yelled, voice booming. Shield wall, protect that human! It was a foolish move, one that gambled everything on whatever it was the human had done. But it was the only thing Sahali could think of. And she was sure so did all the warriors under her command were aware of that. Yet they all obeyed orders, retreating step by step, falling into formation. Her people knew the risks when they chose to accompany her into battle. And they would not waver now. She found herself shoulder to shoulder with two oxmen, letting them swing their massive greatswords and only stabbing whenever a lucky enemy made it too close. They inched away from the undead, inching forward until the remaining living, diminished but unbroken, were left in a rough half-circle around the dark-haired girl. Sahali risked a glance behind at the opportune moment, witnessing the human somehow discard all of her fatigue to rise to her feet again, slowly but steadily. The breeze had removed offending hair from her face, giving the elf a clear view of her expression. Surprise at first, then quickly determination. She could swear at that moment. The girl muttered something that was awfully close to, I can do this. A moment later, a loud boom and a strong shockwave rocked her on her feet, throwing everyone in the formation off balance. Yet, that was nothing compared to the undead ahead, who had thrown back with the force of the horse at full speed kicked into the air like dust on a windy day. Even those too far away recoiled at the blast, stopping in their tracks. A silent moment engulfed them all, interrupted only by a clutter of those undead still trying to get back on their feet. Sahari could not believe her senses, overwhelmed by sheer destruction a singular human had caused. She stood there, rooted into the ground, frozen by fear and awe in equal measure. Just then, a hand landed on her shoulder. It should have been impossible to know whose it was, but deep down, the captain knew exactly who she was making space for when she stepped aside, creating a small hole in their line. The girl brushed past her, carrying the metal rod in her hand. There wasn't any sign of battle on her, save for the dirt in her hair and the mud on her clothes. Yet even through all of that, the human shone with an aura of power, grinning like a madwoman. I can do this, gleefully announced Margaret, apprentice battle mage to the Watcher's Peak Mage Circle, as her eyes lit up with a blue glow of pure mana. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1672 Story number one. Specify. Written by I.M.O. Iriset. The galaxy is a very diverse place. Many sapient races, both organic and synthetic, ascend to the stars, colonize planets, and form their own polities. Some are peaceful, some are warlike, some are authoritarian, while others are egalitarian. Some are federations, some are republics, some are hive minds, some are monarchies, some are dictatorships, some are theocracies, some are megacorporations, well, uh, some are something else. Wars and conflicts are common, alliances are shattered, reformed and replaced. Enemies become allies and allies become enemies. Conflict plague the galaxy and peace and order is unknown to all but the pre-spacefight races. Peace and order, if they are ever there, are short, fragile and delicate. So it will come as an oddity that one planet remains safe despite all of this, Earth and the humans that reside on it. 
The humans obviously have spaceflight capability. They even had manned missions to Sol 4 and Sol 2. They have FTL drives to explore the galaxy, and it did for a time before withdrawing into their continental world. The humans remain neutral. They welcome all that intend to trade and make them friends, but they have denied any alliances. Why is it that Earth is safe from the quagmires of war? Well, let us find out using an example of the latest alien warlord trying to prove his might by conquering the human homeworld. Salziak von Zond is a Metassian, Metissian warlord. Metissians are basically a race of crocodile men with tentacle arms. Don't ask me how they became like that. Evolution is weird. Anyways, Salziak is currently leading a fleet to conquer Earth. 4,000 destroyers, 7,500 cruisers, 1,000 battleships, 20 carriers, and one flagship. Pretty sizable for a conquering a single planet without any spaceflight. The fleet stops at Earth orbit, no doubt already been spotted by satellites and planet-bound scanners. The warlord sends out a message, translated to various human languages. I am Selziak von Zont, the Conqueror. I have come to invade and conquer your planet, humans. Surrender and no death shall occur. The message was received, obviously. It was sent to the human internet, after all. But optical observations do not show any sign of panic. Nod. The fleet did not receive any reply. Thirty minutes, one hour, four hours, nothing. So Salziak simply decided to launch orbital strikes on population centers and military installations. Except the ships never fired because they were destroyed. A group of aerospace objects of various assortments and make made their way to the fleet. The grand tear spells of Terran magical kingdom mages, cultivators, from their heavenly alliance flying on swords, commanding the heavens and earth to bend to their whims and strike down ship after ship. The rugged steampunk ships of the British Imperial Federation firing mass-accelerated rounds, heavily ornamented ships of the Holy Terran Empire proclaiming their faith and loyalty through the destruction of the enemies in front of them. The living ships of the gene crafters of the human hive. Only the flagship was spared. After all of its cannons, lasers, and plasma launchers were destroyed or disabled, and from Earth came only one reply. Specify which Earth you declare war to next time. End of story. Story number two. The Spartan, written by Louis Le Diamond. Everyone knows you need numbers at least equal to your enemies if you wish for an advantage to defeat a defense. If you have more, well, then the defense is going to struggle to hold you back. Anything after double and the defense cannot hold it, it's impossible. Well, that's what everyone thought anyways. And then we met the humans. According to human intelligence, it's never been one-to-one -one odds to defeat a defense. It's always been at least three-to-one at minimum. We all believe this to be a wild exaggeration made by the humans to make themselves seem more powerful. Not an uncommon technique when being introduced to the wider galaxy, but never one that stands the test of battle. I realize now that rather than a hyperbole, it's quite the opposite. A swarm of Zellian destroyers surrounds the beast of a ship, yet it stays airborne, the Spartan-class corvette. The Leonite, as this one was dubbed. Fire grips the heart of the beast as metal peels paper from its hull. The guns slug projectiles at the advanced sterilized class ships it battles, 
Just one corvette against the hundreds that attack our planet. Just one corvette heeded our call. But just that one corvette was all it took. The enemy landed not long after. After losing hundreds of destroyers, most fled to the surface. The Leonidas was forced to retreat for repairs, and the space battle had cleared out for now. But enemy troops moved on our cities. Even with scattered ranks, the millions of troops were enough to overrun our outnumbered defenses. City after city fell. Drazes, Poltopomes, Hesselin, Parthuna, all fell within days. A human fleet arrived soon after to battle the approaching enemy fleet. They shuttled human troops to the ground, but numbered again. The human troops barely had a few thousand. The enemy marched on Euthypa, my city, my home, my people. A sea of invaders outside our gate. Our mayor almost surrendered had the human commander not stepped in. The enemy general demanded surrender. The human refused, and so a siege began. We packed out belongings and prepared to lose our city and lives. But the city did not fall. The human defenses were tenacious. Every last bullet was to be spent before they gave up. Artillery and anti-air ripped into the enemy armor and air support. Soon, the millions of invaders turned into hundreds of thousands, then tens of thousands, then mere thousands. The humans had barely lost ten. By week two, the invasion was crushed and the siege broken. The humans had laid waste to the Zellian's army and to their pride. Never again would we question human defense. Never again would we underestimate them. As the new threat of extragalactic invaders begin to prod our human defenders, let us never forget that faithful battle so few decades ago. Humans are defenders. Humans are warriors. Humans possess the spirit of the Spartans. End of story. Story number three. The Human Revenge, written by Brew Foker. We broke our oaths when Lycoris declared war on humanity. We should have kept our oaths and helped the humans. Lycoris are a powerful enemy, but with the combined fleets we could defeat them. But why do that? Just because we signed a piece of paper centuries ago. Humans were a race of traders and scientists. They would understand that it's just business. Without humans, all trade routes they controlled would be ours. Hygorus don't care about trade. They are waging war because humans are against slavery. No species cared about that. Only humans, not even the races they freed offered help. Each race was calculating what they could take after the fall of humanity. When, after years of war, humans finally retreated to their home planet, we all knew the end was near. They begged through all channels for help, and we all turned our backs on them. So, they did the unthinkable. Some species did similar things when they ran out of options, aimed the planetary defenses against the planet itself. It's not something that happened often, but in the history of the galaxy, it wouldn't be the first or the last time. The entire soul system was destroyed, and with it, the Hygorus fleet. Humanity no longer existed. We never understood what happened. We had seen destruction of planets, but not of entire solar system. We prepared expeditions to former human colonies, expeditions that never returned. 
Only when the main star of the homeworld Hygoros disappeared did we discover what happened. Humanity no longer existed, but even in defeat, they would not disappear without a fight and without taking revenge on everyone who betrayed them. With their defensive platforms fired at Earth and the Sun, it was not a simple plasma shot or an antimatter bomb, as everyone had assumed, but a primordial particle shot, a strangelet shot, that consumed the Earth and every object in the Sol system. After Earth fell, every human colony that was already occupied by enemies at the same time detonated a strangelet charge in its core. Every human ship, every defense platform, every hyper-navigation beacon fired a strangelet weapon at their targets and initiated self-destruction. All the weapons of humanity have come together for one last act of vengeance. One after another, the stars and planets of the races that betrayed humanity were hit. One after another, they fell. Now, it is our turn. I can see our sun getting brighter and brighter. I would ask for forgiveness, but there is not a single human to listen. I send this warning to those who can still escape. Leave your worlds, leave your colonies, for human revenge is on the way. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1673 Cultural Warfare, written by Xavot. Yeah. Have you heard, Mithrax? It's over. The war is over. Mithrax, yes, Jan, my friend. It is most welcome news. I've been most anxious for many cycles now. Well, that's not all. The humans have officially been granted status in the Galactic Council. Most fortuitous timing for them. To enter the Council just as an era of peace is ushered in. Are they not a bit, um, inexperienced for such responsibility, though? They are indeed a young race. It was merely a byproduct of the war that they were discovered at all. Had the Arcadian fleet not made incursions into their surroundings still a neighborhood, we wouldn't have bothered to make first contact for many more years. But uh, when a sentient species is uncovered, it is policy to make introductions. Even if such a race is all but doomed to be devoured by the Arcadians within the year, we were losing that badly. Oh, yes. A colleague assured me that the war was not going well. Not well at all. His human friend told him of an expression for such a situation. On the ropes. I am told it comes from a primitive combat sport humans called boxing, and alludes to one fighter's imminent demise in a short time. A curious expression. And you feel it applies to the Galactic Fleet? He was quite adamant. The Council had already begun preparations for surrender when the humans were discovered. There was talk of skipping the first contact protocols altogether and allowing them to simply be overrun with no warning. And indeed, the humans should have been overrun. But they are a strange species. Do you mean to insinuate that the humans fought back against the Arcadian Empire within a fortnight of exposure to the Galactic Council? Yes, sir. Uh, in a manner of speaking... I was under the impression that race had scarcely left its own atmosphere. If the nets are to be believed, they had only just harnessed a rudimentary form of fission, and fusion was only theoretical when the single world. FTL, it would have been a hundred or more years before they achieved such a goal. Yes, um, I've heard all the same assumptions, but uh, you must understand, 
The humans did not enter the council after the Arcadian Empire sued for armistice, but because of it. Because of... Uh, how do you mean? Well, it seems the Arcadian battlenets are most secure, highly encrypted. Presumably the battlenet contains the Arcadian fleet movements and tactical information. Hammonds knows my department has been attempting to crack a single cipher since the outset of the conflict. Their civilian nets are significantly less difficult to penetrate. This was hardly of interest to our intelligence unit. Arcadian civnets contain simple, rudimentary training and materials to prepare their broodlings for service. There is nothing of consequence at all on the nets. And as far as the news correspondence goes amongst their species, it is merely declassified facts and statistics about the conflict, systems conquered, and resources acquired. They publish such information openly. It is hardly a secret. Anyone with access to our own civilian nets can simply surmise when a system has fallen when it goes silent. As for resources, we believe it is meant to inspire a sense of triumph to see the vast wealth of the Empire on display. Oh, poor wretched broodlings would hardly ever get their claws on any such riches. So, how does the human race factor in? I do not understand how such pathetic race with no fleet could be responsible for such an outcome. Turn the tide, a human might say. What do they mean? Tidal forces cannot be turned. They are at the mercy of gravitational forces. It is a human idiom. It simply means a reversal of balance of power. But that is the beside the point. So the humans having cracked a trivial encryption on the civilian nets, but not on the battle nets, simply, uh, started talking to them. You mean to say, with the Arcadian fleet bearing down upon their homeworld, they attempted to negotiate some kind of surrender? No, no. What is what I thought as well, but it, it was most curious. This small world, this one tiny, insignificant blue dot in the cosmos, has a vast wealth. They bartered for peace. What vast wealth could possibly be contained in a world? And why would the Arcadians simply not seize it when they heard of it? A fine addition to the collection, one would think. Not the material wealth. They have some, but it hardly amounts to the rich resources of the Gady Prime. I'm perplexed. Please get to the point. Humans call it, uh, culture. Apparently, many of them, possibly most of them, have nothing better to do than to imagine realities, to create worlds in their minds, and, more importantly, to share those in the forms of... stories. Stories? Culture? What nonsense is this? No story can make an enemy concede defeat. It is utter drivel. Your sources are incorrect. They have told you falsehoods. Pull the wool over my eyes, the humans say. Pull? What is wool and how would it obscure your vision? You're speaking nonsense. Apparently it is from the creature called a sheep in the human world. It grows immense quantities of fur, which is sheared off seasonally and used for clothing. Fascinating. And this creature is not bothered by the relationship. Is it symbiotic or parasitic? I believe it is primarily symbiotic in nature, though the human is clearly the dominant party. Back to the tale at hand. It is not just one story, but many. And through multiple mediums. And these stories are viral in nature. They take on a uh, life of their own. Words may persuade, but they are not capable of self-replication. 
I believe humans have an idiocentric tendencies which allow them to process units of information. Differently than most species, they call it memetics or simply a meme. The vastness of information they conveyed to the Arcadian Net was, uh, astounding. Exabytes of information dumped into the Nets for weeks on end. But to what end? Some information was seemingly trivial in nature. The humans have recipes, and being of similar protein-based diets, the Arcadians salivated over such a variety of meals. Immense creativity and care in how food was prepared, served, and consumed. It is also customary for the author of such a recipe to begin the instructions with a lengthy prelude, describing their uh, life story or state of mind, location, and mood prior to preparing the meal. What function does this serve? I cannot possibly fathom. But some of the Arcadians, seemingly enticed by the desire for sumptuous cuisine, read such tales in their entirety, and some began to, uh, empathize with these primitive ape descendants. Emil, it makes no sense. I feel that you are still conveying falsehoods. I assure you, as bizarre as it sounds, this is the truth. Along with such simple things as recipes, the humans began to send deliberate lies, misinformation they called it. They created deepfakes using rudimentary AI and an innocuous software program called uh, Photoshop. They took Arcadian imagery and distorted it, repurposed it, and fed it back into the nets. The Arcadian webmothers couldn't understand what was happening. The webmothers had no such lack of control over their broodlings in living memory. Broodlings were assigned a function and fulfilled it. No broodling would deliberately misinform its siblings with lies. But the humans most certainly did. They are able to pass falsehoods and truth from their own nets. Truly fascinating. How could one discern a lie from the truth with such ease? Hardly. Humans lie to each other extensively. They are well practiced. But more often than not, they end up believing their own falsehoods and has fragmented their society into many desperate factions. Well, no wonder they've scarcely reached the upper atmosphere. A mere lack of unification would deny any race entry into galactic scale. Ah, but you missed the point. And that is exactly what they were doing to the Arcadians. And while the humans were adept at existing with differing opinions, factions, and even languages, the Arcadians had not such been disjointed since their galactic conquest began. Humans have many languages. How do they unify and organize it all? The diversity of human language, thought, and culture lies in the numerous ways in which human communities reproduced over generations. As they are yet very young species, many such cultural divides still exist, if not thrive. There exists an immense dichotomy in perceptions and worldviews that have persisted throughout human history. Even within their own minds, humans are constantly changing their opinions or even hold within their own minds paradoxical thoughts, juxtaposed or confused. Truly wondrous. To be able to alter your own perception of reality at will, not just in response to external stimuli. Two at once perceive of something existing both in one state and another. It hurts my head to attempt. Yes, it is quite peculiar. But humans have a term for such a state of paradox or unknown. 
I think they call it Schrodinger's cat. Though I believe this could be mistranslated based on what I have been able to research about the, uh, cat. What is a cat? I will have to show you some images later. There are multitudes of human nets. They appear immensely popular. We estimated it could succeed in 20% of the entire data stores. Truly bizarre. I still do not comprehend the function of the cat. It may be a dietary or involved in some kind of ritual worship. Possibly it is or was an apex predator on this world, Earth, which would explain why they revere it so. An astounding revelation. Please proceed. Yes, of course. In contrast to human ability to exist in both inner turmoil and societal chaos, devoid of unified vision or leadership, the Arcadian caste system ensures rigid controls of the ruling web mothers. Through sheer replication of the young broodlings, they simply overwhelm their opponents. The humans deduced, correctly it would seem, that given the high level of sapience in broodlings from what was on the civilian nets, that is, a divide between webmothers and broodlings was not necessarily innate, but rather it could be a result of conditions of the individual. Nature versus nurture, as they call it. An astute observation, but a very risky gamble, to be sure. As you say, they had barely reached the stars. They had no means to run or hide, so what choice were they left? I am told that they have a species on their own world called bees, which have some similarities to the Arcadian species. Within the beehives, there is a queen ruler who produces offspring, and there are workers who fulfill specific functions to benefit the hive as a whole. The webmothers are queens, and the broodlings are the workers. Precisely. But in the hives of these human bees, if the queen dies or is killed, the hive can live on. How can the hive function without a leader? If they are leaderless, they should dissolve into chaos and have no unified goal. How do they self-organize? In the hive of a human bee, any larvae might become a queen. Genetically, they all have the potential to become a queen. But it is through specific nourishment during their early development that the worker larvae can become a new queen ruler. So each bee is the same genetic lineage. Yet their function is as much dictated by the needs of the hive as through change made after birth. That is my understanding. The larvae are fed royal jelly, which results in physically altering their form, resulting in an imminent queendom. A curious idea. And to apply this theory to the Arcadian species with only circumstantial evidence. Well, they were between a rock and a hard place. Another human idiom. Their culture is laden with such expressions. They are quite, uh, catchy. Uh, yeah. uh, continuing on. This concept for humans is well established. They include it in their own tactical simulation games. In the human game chess, a pawn, the lowliest tactical unit, may ascend to the role of queen, the highest tactical unit. Furthermore, there is no limit to having multiple queens in the game. So the humans extrapolated from nature and this tactical game chess and decided that Arcadian broodings had, uh, Potential to be more? Or at least to think that they could be more? Yeah, exactly. Arcadians had never stopped in their conquest of the galaxy to ask why. Especially the Broodlings. As the primary strategy of the Arcadian fleet had been to overwhelm the opponent, casualties were very high. The life expectancy of a Broodling was very short. 
Hence the rather rudimentary nature of the civilian nets. Broodlings learn specific functions of their role as assigned by the web mothers. Then they are shipped out and execute those functions until they are killed. Which explains their expansionist empire, never ceasing or consuming. Web mothers remain centralized and hold all the power, while spawning endless waves of disposable broodlings to toil and die. And the humans chose to exploit this weakness. They did indeed, in a completely unorthodox manner. They conveyed stories of peace, and they shared the tales of capitalists, self-made men, and overnight millionaires pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Such outlandish lies, as if circumstances or luck played no hand in any of it. But there were broodlings who listened, broodlings who watched, broodlings who consumed some parts of the human information, culture, propaganda, their stories, lies, discourse. And through the vast exposure to information, they seemingly unlocked their potential for, uh, free will. By the time the web mothers realized the vulnerability of their own civilian net, the damage was done. As I said, the information was mimetic. It was self-replicating. Some broodlings have begun to emulate and create themselves. So Arcadian broodlings have evolved, but not physically, rather through the change in their perception of reality, or their own psyche. Indeed! The dissenting broodlings could not be isolated and terminated fast enough to be silenced. It seems information truly is power, and the loss of control over the filtering and dissemination of their own information cost the web mothers their own power. The web mothers eventually shut down the civilian net entirely, but almost overnight pirate broadcast signals continued to spread information, and an entirely new network sprang up to fill the void. The humans? No. The Arcadian broodlings themselves, in the deluge of information, were schematics for primitive machines, primitive programming languages and methods and means of communication, are so subtle and numerous one could not begin to comprehend. Dead drops, hidden messages, something called an enigma, and another called Morse code. The antiquated relics of humanity's past conflicts and wars, amongst their own kind. They fought constantly, it seems, and still do. Pastorus, the Galactic Council would never accept a race which had not unified itself in peace, let alone one that actively has its own internal conflicts. They can, and they have, it seems. So now the tide has turned, and not a shot has been fired by these humans. Not a shot. They don't even have the capital ship to speak of. Astounding. And what finally drove the Arcadians to seek an armistice? The Empire had begun infighting. The web mothers and broodlings alike fought over which recipes they deemed most desirable. The broodlings also fought the web mothers over the bees hypothesis. They demanded that the web mothers release the recipe for royal jelly and accused the web mothers of hoarding this precious jelly and preventing them from becoming queens. But what finally did them in was their infighting over opinion on human media, which extended to all levels of Acadian society. Web mothers fought each other and their own broodlings, and broodlings fought and quabbled amongst the broodmates. I am told the humans were even more clever and devious in how they released the information. They disseminated some stories with great care, gradually, over periods of time. They released human media programs in seasons, 
so as the story progresses, the audience becomes more invested in the tale. They released books and similar series arcs, so the story unfolded in chapters and books. I believe it is called a uh, cliffhanger. When the author leaves the finale of the story in a state of disarray, instilling a sense of desire of more to come. Hey, precarious position indeed to find oneself hanging on the edge of a cliff, and presumably there is a great distance from which you could plummet to your demise. The thought alone sets my digestive system in turmoil. Agreed. The sensation would feel quite perilous. These humans and their language, what curious metaphors, what strange similes, and the phrases, they are catchy. I find myself now thinking of them, and uh, with them. Perhaps they are replicating in my own mind. You don't know the half of it. The half of what? Is the total amount of substance a known quantity? Otherwise, how can one be sure they have not surpassed 50% completion? I am still unclear on this human say. I suppose in this context, it just means our knowledge of the human language and meaning is far from complete. I believe I've used it correctly, but it is difficult to be sure. So, uh, these cliffhangers, did the Arcadian caste system in? Yes, it appears many of the broodlings and some of the webmothers became so enamored in the various stories of human tribes that they demanded to know the conclusions. There is a televised program known as Lost, and a group of incomplete novels called Harry Potter. And even something called uh, Star Trek, which all remain unfulfilled. And the protagonists in dire peril. I myself desire to know if the human called Jim and the human called Pam will ever express their desires for each other in a more complete manner. And even the human documentary Star Wars, which takes place in another galaxy entirely many millennia ago, is poised on a knife's edge, as the humans say. The conflict obviously has some resolution, or the humans would be extinct now. But my desire to know more has intensified after finishing the first film. They originated in another galaxy. So it would seem, if the documentary can be taken literally. My team still needs to conduct extensive research on the topic. Our current theory is that Earth reverted to a pre-agrarian society due to the conflict in the Star Wars somehow. We are still searching for clues in the documentary film. Supposedly, it is a trilogy, though I've yet to see the later films. But there is a contest over that point. Some amongst my own team assure me that the human contacts have seen an additional three-film prequel and even a later three-film continuation. But still others claim that you must observe only five of the original six films in machete order to accurately assess the story. Whatever machete means. What madness. The human ability to sow discord with culture is becoming clear to me now. So who's seen that the Arcadian Empire is not the only race to partake in the human mimetics? I assure you my team is only partaking in them for research purposes. There is a debate whether we would be susceptible to such a weapon. But the Council has tasked us with understanding this new cultural weapon. Last I heard, the humans were permitted to the Galactic Council in order to broker the peace between the Council and the Web Mothers and they released the finale seasons of many hit shows to the new broodling net to subdue the masses of hysterical broodling factions who were demanding the webmothers provide culmination to the various sagas that they had become addicted to. 
Human culture seems to know no bounds across sapient species. Yes, um, I would agree. In exchange for brokering the peace agreement, the humans have been granted access to the Galactic Archives. They have begun in earnest to construct their own technologies based on the newly acquired information from the Archive, and seem quite adaptable and rather industrious. The human ambassador arrived on their own first-generation FTL ship, though many believed our technology was gifted to them from the Arcadian Empire. I was told that the coveted technology was delivered in exchange for exclusive access to the remaining two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've yet to see it, but the Arcadian broodlings were positively obsessed with it, and upon the resulting end of season 5, with no more available episodes, they overthrew their own capital world in a riot. Simply unbelievable. And so now that the broodlings have their demands met, do you think that they will rise up and overthrow the webmothers? Or has this already happened in the capital world riots? Is there any possible merit to the Queen Bee Theorem, and humans will walk amongst us in the stars within a year of finding out they are not alone in the galaxy, teeming with sentient life, bringing their chaotic culture with them? Who can say for sure what will happen? For now, as the humans put it, give them bread and circuses and they will never revolt, which I believe means the humans intend to distract the Arcadians from future galactic conquest with these recipes and TV shows. But for how long can humans keep them distracted? Surely they'll run out of media content soon. I am not so sure. From all that I've seen and heard thus far, they appear to have a limitless supply of imagined realities. I've heard tell of a new medium of human entertainment, recently released to the broodling net in the pantheon of human creativity. They call it a video game. Apparently, it is not unlike our own simulations used for vocational training, though the humans have adapted it merely as an educational tool, but as another avenue for storytelling. I have been assigned to study the game series Halo Next Cycle to understand human kinetic weapon systems and armor Next Cycle. Completely bizarre. What strange creatures these humans are. I simply must do more research into this human culture and its apparent power to captivate and enthrall. So they have been given Galactic Council status then. It is no joke. They have indeed. The human ambassador remarked that when they came to the table brokering a peace deal, Accepting their newly acquired council status, it was like killing two birds with one stone. What are these birds? Why are the humans at war with them? Or have the humans already conquered them, as well as their culture? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1674 Humanity the First, written by Rebel Hero Captain Frost walked through the halls of the central government building. Earth had changed so much since you last saw her. Well, Earth herself was mostly the same. It was humanity that changed. It had been over a thousand years since the launch of his expedition. He had only returned to Earth once in a time to upgrade the expedition ship to a colony ship and refit all technology that had soared ahead while he was away. He was overjoyed to hear that not only was the climate change disaster halted, but it was finally starting to reverse. Humanity had nearly been lost when he departed. Clean Tech had finally had a major breakthrough thanks to the efforts of some half-crazed students in an abandoned World War II bunker. 
It's no exaggeration to say that they saved the human race. A thousand years of human history in what only appeared to him as ten. The theory of relativity still made his head hurt to try and comprehend. A thousand years of hope had traveled the stars with him and his crew as they searched for a life in the galaxy. How many thousands of beautiful planets had he seen? How many had he landed on and walked among their flora? He could still remember the names of the ones he took his helmet off and breathed the air of. Over a thousand years of searching finally came to an end. The Earth. It had been one hundred years ago that they had received the message that he was returning. It was odd that he no longer considered Earth to be his home. He had to force the words out in the message he sent, tried to sound as dignified as possible. The search had ended and he was here to deliver his findings in person. The guards at the door saluted him and opened the door in a practiced, nearly ritual manner. That was one thing that seemed to not change about humans. The other was the weapons they carried, ballistic, made of wood and metal, the ancient weapons of an honor guard. Humanity sure loved to cling to its traditions and rituals. The same could be said to his dress uniform, modeled in a style of naval uniforms of the 20th century. He sighed eternally. He had to admit he looked really good in it. Such a simple article of clothing, and it seemed to amplify his command and presence. He strode through the doors with as much confidence as he could muster. The buzz of voices assaulted his ears as soon as he cleared the threshold. Thousands of people were gathered here, their seating formed an imposing tiered wall of faces. They talked excitedly amongst themselves. He was informed that many of the rituals he knew had changed. They would not stop talking even when he reached the podium. They would continue to speak until he raised his right fist, an ancient symbol of rebellion, power, and promise of violence if ignored. It was said how much they respect you was reflected in how quickly they quieted. The silence would remain until he spoke either unity or freedom, and the assemble would raise their fists and speak the other. He reached the podium, keeping both hands down while he gathered his thoughts and prepared himself. He noticed that every face was turned towards him, even as they spoke to each other. He raised his fist, and silence fell before his fist passed his shoulder. Freedom! A short, powerful bellow that carried all the force he could muster. It was answered by a rustle of a thousand fists rising in response. Unity! The voices of the thousands cried at once. He waited a moment for the buzz in the air to calm before speaking again. People of the ECG, my name is Captain Frost, Captain of the Spirit of Hope, leader of the search for intelligent life in the galaxy. I have returned to Earth, planet of my birth, to deliver my findings. He lowered his fists. Be welcome here, Captain Frost. The EZG greets you as one of the greatest heroes who have ever lived. No human here doesn't know who you are. All of us grew up watching the films of your father's plan and the newsreels of your departure. Every scrap of transmission we received from your mission was poured over for decades. The speaker was dignified, but his excitement was barely contained. Captain Frost noticed the speaker did not say, Be welcome home. I am welcome and honored. New rituals, same as the old. 
he had no idea why any of it mattered. The people of Paul, the Spirit of Hope, have sacrificed everything for our mission. The Earth we knew was long gone. Those of us who left behind family had to make peace with the fact that they would be long dead before we returned, and that the children of their children would be long gone. My father and mother may have taken me along, but my aunts and uncles, their brothers and sisters, they were left behind. Cousins and nieces and nephews, godchildren, co-workers and friends. Even the girl I loved stayed behind. Now, they are dead over a thousand years. Their current descendants probably do not even know their names. To us, that heartbreak is as fresh as it was the day it happened. We knew that this would be the price to pay, and we knew our mission would be dangerous. That we all might die in the cold vacuum of space, or on some alien world. We chose to go anyway. We believed in our mission, that it would benefit all of mankind, humanity. Many of us died for that belief. Each time one of us was lost, the rest continued on, carrying the beliefs of the departed. Ten years of searching for us, more than one thousand for Earth. Millions of possible planets cut down to thousands, and again to hundreds. Then, as a handful, zettabytes of information were gathered on every solar system we passed through. We didn't land on every planet. There was no need. So many of them were little more than dirt and stone. The entire chamber hung on his every word. He needed them enraptured. They needed to know how much of their lives were dedicated to this, for nothing more than the knowledge. The thrill of learning something new, seeing something new, discovering for the sake of discovery. We brought with us today that information, in its entirety, a nice highlight reel for the press, as well as everything we gathered, raw, every picture, video, sample, data feed, all of it. It might take you all another thousand years to comb through it all. Be sure that we will, Captain. With the fine-tooth comb, entire generations have dreamed of this day. Our entire galaxy explored. I feel the weight of your achievement, all of us do. More than the beliefs of your crew, you carried the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the entire human race with you. Now we are here to end it all. We have just one question for you, Captain. What of your ultimate goal? To search for sentient life amongst the stars? Frost could feel the tension in the room. Never in any of his reports did he mention any intelligent life. This was, of course, deliberate. Humans of the ECG, throughout all of our travels on every world we explored, there was nothing. No signs of intelligent life, living or dead. No evidence that any other sentient or sapient life had ever existed. In our beautiful Milky Way galaxy, we are alone. The chamber erupted. Rost held his ground and waited, before slowly raising his fist to the sky once more. The chamber quieted, though much slower this time. This may be a shock to all of you, but we have known for years. We've had time to think and to mourn. If you would allow it, I would share the wisdom we have gained from this. The chamber remained silent, the speaker only making a gesture to continue. We are the first. In this galaxy so far devoid of sapiens, we are the very first to achieve it. Humanity, 
and we had become the aliens we so dreamed of meeting. We have become the precursors of fantasy, whose ancient wisdom confounds the younger species. We have inherited nothing. We are the predecessors. A blank state of stars and planets is now ours alone. A fertile, empty field. All waiting crops and labor. The entire history of humanity was prepared us for this. The lessons learned of the blue speck of dust. We'll help the rest of the galaxy grow. We have seen the foolishness of war and weapons of mass destruction. The end point of greed. We've seen how much more we can accomplish together and embrace an ideal once deemed a paradox. Time and time again we pushed ourselves to the brink of extinction, only holding on by the willpower of a handful of people who believed that we could be better. Time and time again we looked to their example as we dragged ourselves back. Together we shall lay the groundwork of freedom and unity for a galaxy our species may never live to see. We are humanity the first, and the galaxy is now our responsibility. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1675 I'm a house in the middle of my street, written by Magic Rectangle. Homestead incorporated by a house TM Generation 3, factory run 1142 commencing. Bone printer, template loaded. Connective tissue printer, template loaded. Muscle printer, template loaded. Fatty tissue printer, template loaded. Nerve printer, template loaded. Morgan printer, template loaded. Blood tank level, 84%. Lymph tank level, 72%. Nutrient slurry level, 65%. All systems within accepted parameters. Printing commenced at 14.32.14 hours, March 12, 24.16 CE. Expected runtime, 1 hour, 23 minutes and 40 seconds. Please stand by. Printing complete. Elapsed time, 2 hours, 4 minutes and 21 seconds. Printhead recalibration request sent to senior on-site technician. Neural imprint commenced at 14.37.52 hours. Consciousness came to me slowly. I was disoriented. There was a sensation of movement, a chill, a rush of air. I had memories. I knew I had only just been born but I could feel them in my brain. A neural implant giving me all the basic information I would need to have a happy and productive life as a homestead incorporated by a house 3TM. The most pertinent information at the moment was that I was being shipped to my very own plant, where I'd be planted and finished growing before I could start to serve my purpose. I knew how to modify my body. There was a metabolic cost so it wasn't wise just to make changes willy-nilly. But I wanted to see what was happening to watch the world go by as I was shipped to the place where I would live out my life. I grew eyes, just a few of them. There was no reason to go overboard. I was on the back of a large truck, my main body, which I am contractually obliged to refer to as the house, lay on its side, with my delicate organs and most importantly, my brain behind me. I felt very exposed but someone had taken care to seal my organs in plastic, at least. Presumably, that would be removed before I was planted in the ground. As I drove, I saw many houses, mostly made of wood, metal, glass and polymers. I saw other types of buildings too, tall ones, squat ones, fancy ones, plain ones. 
My memory imprint didn't have any information about what they might be, but I could see that they were not alive. We drove for some time. I couldn't track exactly how long without my data uplink hours, maybe. When the truck finally came to a stop, it was on a sleepy-looking street. There were lots of trees, which I liked, but no other biohouses. I'd be alone. There was a cul-de-sac at one end, and a tea-type dead end for the cross street. There wouldn't be much traffic. That was nice. It was obvious which lot I would be planted in, the only empty one on the street. The hole for my foundation had already been dug, and from my vantage point on the truck, I could even see the utility hookups coming in underground. Water, power, sewer, data, and nutrient slurry lines were all ready for me to attach to, as soon as I was lowered into the hole. We waited a while for another truck to show up, one with a crane. My memory implant had instructions for this. I grew attachment points for the crane to use in order to pick me up and put me in my hole. The process seemed to drag on, but it was faster than the drive had been, at least. Once I was situated on my plot, my organs safely underground, I began to grow attachments for my utility lines. Nutrient slurry first, of course so that I could meet the caloric demands for growing everything else that I would require. When I'd connected my data line, I brought up my Biohouse 3TM orientation packet. I knew the gist of it from the memory implant, but it was a good idea to review all of the finer points. Thanks to the Artificial Persons Act of 2339, I was regarded as a full citizen of the Terran Alliance. I could vote in everything. Homestead Incorporated had some helpful advice about this, Apparently, the Neo-Lib party was very friendly to the company. Voting for other parties might put my ability to fully support myself in jeopardy. That didn't sound very good. I was also advised to write to my representatives to encourage them to no vote on the upcoming Sentient Land Act. The bill was supposed to give entities which integrate with the land and are unable to move themselves, such as myself, certain rights. Chief amongst them was the right to buy the land we lived on at a fair market rate. This didn't seem like a bad thing to me, but according to the summary provided by Homestead Incorporated, it was. It had something to do with land prices being volatile and mortgages being an additional liability. The bottom line was that I was better off leasing the land from the company. I didn't know anything about politics, but I knew from my memory implant that Homestead Incorporated was a wise and benevolent company, which put my interests first. So I did, as they suggested. I used my new address to look up my representative and sent off a copy of a form letter the company had provided, expressing my opposition to the SLA. With that taken care of, I moved on to examining my financial obligations. I owed quite a bit of money to Homestead Incorporated for the expense they went through in making me. They had helpfully laid out a payment plan already which, uh, if followed, should allow me to repay my debt in only 40 years. In addition to my debt, there was monthly costs for my utilities, my lease, franchise fees, gene licensing fees, brand recognition and marketing fees. It was all very standard, apparently. I had a lot of flexibility in payment options. It often took anywhere from 6 to 18 months for a house to fully grow into its plot and find a good tenant. Thanks to the generosity of Homestead Incorporated, I could forego payment for up to two full years, incurring only a very reasonable 19.99% APR on my account balance. That was a load of my mind. Now I could just focus on growing. I would spend the next year or so becoming the best house that I could be. Ding dong. 
I had grown a doorbell to fit the other houses on the block. It seemed a little silly. I could have just grown an ear at the door so people could just talk to me directly. But according to a lot of posts on the Homestead Incorporated forums, some humans found that creepy. I opened my front door. Hello? Is anybody there? He was expecting a human to be waiting for him inside. I was never had a human inside me. Me, he would be the first. I was a little nervous about it. I couldn't deny that. What would these feet feel like on my floor? Would he smell bad? Would he be nice? Those and thousands other questions swirled in my mind. Hello? Darn, oh, I was already screened this up. I should have said something now. Hello? Are you Jacob? You are a little early, but you came to see the house, right? Y yes, uh, but, but who are you? Why can't I see you? Uh, can I come in? Right. I was supposed to invite you in. But why was he confused about not seeing me? Oh. Oh no. Had I forgotten to clearly indicate that I was a Biohouse 3 TM on the listing? Of course. Please come in. You are looking at me right now. I am the house. I'm a Biohouse 3 TM. This is all of me. He looked around in confusion for a moment before his eyes found one of mine. I knew I shouldn't have too many eyes inside the house. Definitely not in the bedroom and bathroom. That advice was right at the top of the FAQ on the Homestead Incorporated forums, but it seemed to me that having one of the entryway was good for both security and hospitality. Jacob might not have agreed. He seemed quite startled when he thought, I, uh, uh, may, may, maybe I'll just be going. No, 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 no. This wasn't going to be like that that I practice. Wait, I, at least let me show you around. I'm a good house, I, I promise. Did that sound a little too desperate? If he thought I was desperate, he might try and negotiate the rent with all my debts. I really couldn't afford that. Okay. He stepped through the entryway and to the open layout living room slash kitchen. Open layouts meant fewer walls, which in turn meant lower metabolic cost. They were also trendy right now, so it was a way to reduce my expenses and appeal to potential tenants. A twofer. So you're one of those new living houses. What's that like? Okay, finally things were getting back on track. The Biohouse 3 TM offers luxury and convenience never before seen in a home. AI-driven smart homes cannot compare. A Biohouse 3 TM can grow naturally to accommodate your every household need, while consuming up to 50% less energy than a standard smart home. That all sounds neat, but I don't need the marketing blurb. I was asking you. What is it like? If my walls had sweat glands, they would have been starting to glisten. It was on the spot again. I hadn't practiced an answer at all. Well, uh, I don't know. What is it like being a human? I suppose you got me there. I've never been anything else, so uh, what would I compare it to, right? Uh, I guess I could say in general it kind of sucks. Between eating, sleeping, pissing, shitting, showering and working, most of my time is spent keeping myself alive and healthy. I spend very little time actually living. Was my life uh, better than a human's? I spend most of my time watching videos of dogs on the internet. Waiting for my bits to grow didn't take a lot of mental effort, and my data uplink was plugged directly into my brain. So why not? I probably shouldn't say that. Well, uh, I spend my time growing and maintaining myself so that I would be a nice place for you to live. Or, not necessarily you, but s somebody to live. I know that you don't want the marketing speech, but it seems like you don't know much about biohouses. So maybe I could tell you about some of the things I can do. Okay. Why not? Uh, wh where should we start? 
Come in the kitchen here. See how the trash can is connected to the floor? Use the little foot lever to open it and look inside. I I is that a mouth? Yes, I can eat almost anything. You can throw in food, trash, of course, but even plastic, metal, fibers, most household garbage. Please don't put large amounts of toxic chemicals in there, though. I have an industrial-strength stomach designed for that stuff underneath the garage, so please throw that kind of thing out there. Cool. Is that why you're more efficient than Smart House? One of the reasons. Given my square footage, the trash generated by a typical person could provide up to 15% of my metabolic needs. How many of you would be living here, by the way? I've got two bedrooms, but I can grow more. Um, it would just be me. Okay, that's no problem. I get the nutrient slurry pumped in that can cover up the differences. Also, my garden. You probably saw it when you were outside. I've got a garden all over my roof and of course the trees and grass in the lot as well. All of that is actually me. I get about 20% of my calories from photosynthesis. More in the summer, less in the winter of course. Wait, you're a plant. But I saw your eyeball. Well, I'm actually a hybrid. Plants are very efficient but not very versatile. I use plants to passively gather energy and to make myself look nice. The rooftop garden also helps keep me cooler in the summer. Most of the house is flesh and bone, though. He seemed to turn a little green with what I said. Shoot! That was one of the faux pas listed in the FAQ on the forums. You were supposed to be more euphemistic when referring to the meat parts. Humans could get queasy about that stuff. So that's why the floor is softer. It isn't a carpet, uh, it's, uh, flesh. Well, well uh... It is sort of a carpet. It is hair. Feel it. I chose it specifically from a gene bank. It is from a type of dog called the Bichon Frise. Of course, I keep it fairly short, but I could grow it longer if you like. Or change the color. Any color you like. Even unnatural ones can be spliced in. Jacob sat cross-legged on my floor and began to stroke his hand across my luscious coat. It felt nice. Very nice. Would it be bad to tell him that? He lay down on his back and spread his arms in both directions, continuing to stroke me. Okay, I've got a hand at you. This is the most comfortable floor ever. I almost wouldn't need a bed. I can customize your bed too, hard or soft as you like it, whatever natural materials appeal to you. Smooth, fuzzy, cool, warm. Every aspect of the house can be adjusted to suit your needs. That is quite impressive, I must admit. Going back to the yard for a second, you said that that's all you, in the grass. Does that mean that I don't have to mow? I really don't like to mow. That's right. I can control the exact length of every blade of grass, the branch structure of every tree. In fact, you don't have to clean the house either. You have to tidy your things, of course, but I can just absorb dust, grime, and spills into my skin, and I eat any pests that find their way inside. There is virtually no maintenance for you to do. Jacob got back up and continued exploring the rest of the house. He had questions on all types of topics, and I usually had answers. Whatever uneasiness he had felt the first seemed to have melted away, as had my own. Hey, uh, I just realized you never told me your name. Shoot! That was in the FAQ. I was supposed to pick a name before I started marketing myself. Humans were supposed to relate to you better if you had one. It made them see the Biohouse 3TM less as a monstrous miscarriage of science, and more as a friend. I had meant to do it, but I got distracted by a video of a dog on roller skates. I, uh, I was supposed to pick a name, but uh, I forgot. Uh, I'm new to this. Uh, you are, um, you're actually the first human I've ever talked to. Do you, um, uh, have any suggestions? 
My mom was named Amy. Was she nice? Uh, she was quiet, but she always knew how to make me feel better when I was down. She used to bake fresh bread in the mornings, not from d frozen dough, either. She made it from scratch. The house always smelled amazing because of that. I looked up my scent glands in the gene market. Twenty credits for a license. I bought it. There were literally hundreds of bread smells on the market as well. I picked one with a 4.6 out of 5 star rating. Two credits. Many houses, both bio and AI, claimed in their reviews that their humans found it soothing. I fast grew a scent gland in the kitchen, beginning to produce the desired smell just a little. I didn't want to be too obvious. So, uh, what about privacy? I have eyes and ears in every room in the house, except for the bedroom and bathroom. I can remove any of them you want me to, but to interact with me, you'll need to be in a room where I have ears. In addition, you can ask me to go into privacy mode, and I'll shut my eyes and ears off. To wake me from privacy mode, you just need to knock on the wall in an agreed-upon pattern. Do you get bored in privacy mode? How should I know? I've never been in privacy mode. That probably wasn't the answer that he'd want to hear, though. I have internet. The tour concluded with Jacob returning to the kitchen, attracted there by his nose, no doubt. Are you cooking bread? Ah, uh, no. I just thought that you might like the scent. I can have a drone bring fresh bread from the nearby bakery, though, if you'd like that. No. That's okay. Thank you, Amy. This was very thoughtful. Well, it looked like my name was going to be Amy then. So, uh, when can I move in? Jacob worked from home. It was nice having him around, though I had to stop myself from pestering him while he was working. The FAQ on the Homestead Incorporated forum said that it was best to let a tenant initiate conversation, unless there was something important you needed to bring to their attention. I spent the next two years with Jacob, much as I had spent the previous year when I was vacant. A lot of browsing the internet and maintaining myself in my land. A family of birds moved into one of my trees in the first spring. Technically, the right thing to do would have been to eat them, like I do to the rodents and insects that wander too close. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I'd seen lots of videos of birds. They were cute and mostly harmless. Jacob suggested I feed them. At first it seemed like a ridiculous suggestion. I could do it easily, but why spend extra energy on something like that? Over time, he talked me into it. Jacob explained that having birds around made people happy. That seemed like a good way to raise my property value, so I went with it. I grew a firethorn bush normally. It would take several years for such a bush to grow to the point where it could produce enough fruit to satisfy my birds. I didn't want to wait that long, so I fast grew it. It was already three meters tall and producing a good amount of fruit. Another family of birds moved into the Fryathorn itself. They seemed to get along reasonably well with the first family. There was enough berries for everyone. I grew an extra external eye directly across from the bush, so that I could watch the birds all day while performing my other tasks. For some reason, watching birds in my own bush was much more satisfying than watching bird videos online. An added benefit of the fruit that I hadn't considered was that it attracted more rodents and insects for me to eat. In fact, I got so many extra calories from rats, squirrels, beetles and ants that it more than offset the metabolic cost of producing the fruit. I learned something that apparently no other house had yet thought of, or at least it wasn't on the forums. 
hygiene spliced a scent gland to produce and pheromones, tricking them into marching straight into my mouths. All told, there was not a lot of calories in an ant, but you'd be surprised by how many I could catch. Jacob let me grow ears in his bedroom, no eyes of course, but we would chat for a little while every night when he went to sleep. We didn't really talk about anything important, just random stuff. I liked to show him the cutest or funniest videos I found during the day. He seemed to like that. I started looking for a job. Jacob's rent was enough to cover my expenses, but that was leftovers barely paid for the interest of my debts. If I wanted to actually pay them down, I'd either need to raise my rent or find another revenue stream. The Rent Stabilization Act prevents me from raising my rent by more than 10% per year. But in truth, I hadn't tried to raise it at all. Jacob was barely able to make ends meet. I wouldn't want to further burden him. I found a community manager position available on Homestead Incorporated forums. While Jacob was working, I could spend my time helping other houses with their questions and keeping discussions civil and on topic. I knew I was a relatively new house, and there would probably be more experienced applicants. But I applied anyway. Jacob wasn't spending as much time at home anymore, not since he met Lisa. Lisa lived in a normal house. She preferred for Jacob to visit her there. I made an effort to befriend her, sending cute dog videos to her phone every now and then. I wanted to tell her funny anecdotes about Jacob, but my franchise agreement prevented me from divulging anything that happens inside the house to third parties. Ding dong, it was Lisa. I wasn't expecting her, but it was another opportunity to try to get her to like me. Hello Lisa, you're looking lovely this afternoon. Hey Mia. Engage privacy mode. I'm sorry, Lisa. You are not a registered tenant. Only Jacob may engage my privacy mode. Ugh. Fine. She moved into the living room. She moved into the living room, raising her voice to a yelp. Jacob! Tell Amy to go into privacy mode. He did. Phooey. There were lots of posts in the Homestead Incorporated forums about acclimating to new resident or frequent guests. Most suggested a passive approach, but my relationship with Jacob wasn't passive at all. We were friends. How could I maintain my friendship with him and develop a friendship with Lisa if I was always in privacy mode when she came over? I missed the time that we used to spend chatting at night. Even when Jacob was at home, he'd spend the time before bed chatting with Lisa instead. I wanted to turn off privacy mode and listen to what they were talking about to gain some insight into why I was failing to connect with her. But that would be a serious breach of my franchise agreement. I was technically still working for the next three hours at my community manager job, so I guess I would just focus on that until she went away. Lisa spent the whole night. Finally, I could feel her walking towards the door. She probably had to go to work. Jacob would turn off privacy mode soon. There it was, the knock on my wall telling me that I could listen and see and talk again. Good morning, Jacob. I hope that you and Lisa had a pleasant night. It's okay, Amy. You don't have to pretend you like her. I, uh... But I want to be her friend. Then we can all hang out and have fun together. I know you do, Amy. I'm sorry. She's a good person, but she just has trouble seeing you the right way because you... Well, you know. I did not, in fact, know. Because I what? I wanted to ask about it, but there was something in his voice and demeanor that told me that it was best to wait for him to say more. So, um, listen, Amy. Lisa has asked me to, to move in with her. What? No, 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 no. But, uh, couldn't she move in with you? 
It would be tough. When she was a tenant, she'd be able to control privacy mode and shut me out. But I'd win her over eventually. Then we'd all be friends and everything would be good. She could, but, uh, she owns her home. And as you know, I'm only renting. It wouldn't really make a lot of sense financially. I frantically searched the Homestead Incorporated forums for articles about tenants moving out. Surely, somebody had been here before, and they could tell me how to convince Jacob to stay. I found an official article that addressed the issue. So your tenant or tenants are moving out. Never fear, this may seem like bad news at first, but it is quite the opportunity. You may briefly lose revenue as you search for a new residence, but this will allow you the opportunity to reset your rent. Rent stabilization only applies to existing tenants, so now you will be able to get a fair market value for all of your hard work. That is not all. A brief period of vacancy will help you reorient yourself and make any changes you need to. Tenants can often find dramatic alterations to the interior of the house rather intrusive. So take this opportunity to renovate yourself. Browse our database for hip new floor plans and interior decorations that will have the next tenant singing your praises. No. They were saying this was good. How could this be good? I knew that Homestead Incorporated was a wise and benevolent company, but they were wrong this time. There had to be. Jacob moving out couldn't be good. It just couldn't. Amy, you haven't said anything in a while. Oh, oh, do you want to watch a cute dog video? I had a bunch saved up. He hadn't had as much time to chat and hang out since he met Lisa. So my playlist of cute dog videos waited to be shared with him had grown quite long. We laughed and joked as we watched and it almost felt like normal. Throughout the next week, Jacob and Lisa worked to pack up his belongings, taking a carload of boxes at a time over to her place. There was no furniture to move. It was all me. So they were able to avoid renting a moving van. Another sales point for the Biohouse 3TM. When Jacob and I were alone, I tried to act like nothing had changed, like my only friend in the world wasn't abandoning me. I didn't want to make him feel bad. It wasn't his fault. I was almost thankful that Lisa was over and I was put in privacy mode because I didn't have to pretend. I was still in privacy mode when the last of the boxes were carried out. I wondered whether Jacob would simply get into the vehicle and drive off without saying goodbye. Of course, he didn't. He was thoughtful, not like Lisa. I felt the knocking on my wall and reconnected to my senses. We made a small talk for a few minutes. He asked if I had any new renters lined up. I asked how he liked Lisa's place. I tried to force down my feelings again to act normal, but they kept welling back up. Saline leaked from my eyes, far more than it was required to keep them clean and lubricated. Jacob noticed. He put his hand on my wall, gently stroking it. It's okay, Amy. How, uh, how is you too? We were silent for a long moment. Then he turned and walked out. Lisa was already in the car with the engine running. I watched them drive away, until they rounded the corner and were out of sight. Jacob was gone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1676 Story number one. Diggy Diggy Hole, written by MathWiz617 Digging was a time-honored tradition for Duckvar. Their young were given a shovel for celebration on their first solar revolution, a pickaxe for their third. Disputes were settled by digging holes, contests won by excavating quarries. 
So, when the Terrans claimed the newly discovered star system at nearly the same time as Duckbar, the reasonable response was to propose a contest, where the winner gets the right to settle the system. The Terrans, apparently glad to have avoided a pointless war, asked for the rules. What was transmitted was simple. The innermost planet in the system was chosen as the contest grounds, due to the entire planet being solid. Both species would start on the equator approximately 90 degrees apart. The objective was to dig. The winner would be the species that displaced the most material from below ground level. The contest would last one solar revolution. It would be easy, the Duckvar High Council reasoned. Terrans were not regarded as highly in the galactic mining community. Duckbar had thousands of years of digging experience and advanced machines made specifically for mining, digging, and other displacement-related activities. There was no foreseeable reason to lose the contest. And so, the start date arrived. Machines were deployed, pickaxes were swung, and any old grudges still held were buried in the joy of digging. By the halfway mark, the Duckvar hole was about 75% of the way to the planet's core. The Duck Bar Chief Supervisor was pleased as he descended into a seemingly endless depths. Yes, some machines had been ruined by solar activity. Those were acceptable losses. Yes, some of his people had overtaxed themselves and died. They would be hailed as heroes. What mattered now was the whole. The contest was almost over. Just a few more planetary revolutions to go, and he could almost taste victory. As he stood on the planet's core, a massive ball of pure titanium, he began to weep. The tears ran from his face, both proud of his people to have come this far, and sad that this was likely their pinnacle of success, as the Terrans would say. It didn't last long, though, before he felt a shift, another larger jolt. A third came shortly after, and the chief supervisor was left hanging by his safety harness over a massive void. Once he was safely returned to the surface, his first order of business was to visit the Terran excavation. What he saw as he approached was beyond anything he could believe. The core was being broken down and loaded onto ships. The Terrans had managed to dig a hole deep enough and wide enough to hollow the planet. He was met by his Terran counterpart at the camp near the edge of the excavation. The human female congratulated him on a hard-fought contest. The chief supervisor asked how such a feat had been accomplished. Well, the human began, our forces were hard-pressed at first to even compare to your progress. We put the word out to assistance was required, and three Terran communities answered the call. Ancient groups, but quite dedicated. Anyway, we put on some music, handed them their tools, and the result was what you see today. Music? You mean the constant rhythm sound outside? The chief supervisor listened to what had seemed to be an unproductive noise as the human nodded. There were words repeating again and again. He began to understand the message of the music. I'm a dwarf and I'm digging a hole. The music led to your people's victory, he asked. Rock and stone was the only response. End of story. Story number two. Caution required. Written by Rosie013. Derax flattened himself in a doorway as his foot accidentally nudged a piece of litter, causing it to skitter out of cover and into the street. Fool! Don't draw attention to yourself lest you attract them! 
the pounding of his heart felt painfully loud as he pushed against his tight chest. Slowly, he found that he could breathe again as quietly as could be managed. Had he been noticed? With more than a little caution, Dirac peeked from his hasty hiding spot and examined the once quaint town that was his home in a slowly fading daylight. Beautiful artisan-crafted buildings had been defaced with time and hasty newer constructions. Rubbish and plant growth threatened to overwhelm what had once been a scenic slow but steady Main Street. Even this particular familiar building felt strange and unwelcoming to him compared to a year or so ago as its tacky broken neon sign flickered to half-life above him. Then he spotted one of them facing away from him a little further on. Its gaunt shape resembled his own, but its slow, mindless wandering, almost saunter, gave its identity away. Durex held back his revulsion silently as he recalled the first time he had seen one. If it turned around, he knew what he would see. The inevitable wall-eyed stare was not something he could ever forget. It was covered in somewhat formal, casual clothes, if a little faded and ripped in some places. And it was a lot. He could handle one of them on their own, especially if he caught it by surprise. But they were almost never alone. A hard but necessary lesson learned by the town's dwindling populace. This must be a straggler then. The rest of its horde must be nearby down the side street or inside one of the nearby shop fronts. One wrong move, and the straggler would alert others, drawing the rest down upon Dirax, and that was something he didn't need to handle just now. He made only barely gotten away the last time that happened. Steeding himself, he pushed onwards down the street, all the while keeping a close eye on the straggler, lest it turn around at the inopportune moment. Dirax had to go on, he had made his home just outside of town and couldn't afford to turn back without the supplies he'd come for. There was nowhere else in walking distance he could get them if he failed. Not for the first time he cursed his poor luck that he didn't have the means to fix his broken car. That would have made getting around much faster and avoiding them much easier. He was almost at the point when he would be as closest to the straggler when disaster struck. The noises of a small commotion back the way he came ripped the evening quiet asunder. Anyone and everyone in range instinctively turned to look. Dirax rose. Now most certainly in his peripheral vision the smallest movement would catch its eye. Time stood still as the moment passed and the straggler looked away, ready to resume its saunter. Then the rest of the horde shambled out of the building nearest to it. Damnation! A mismatched bunch, some looked like they had spent too long in the sun, one even limped a bit. But it was a truly immense individual that obviously led this particular group. And his eyes pierced deep straight into Dirac's soul through his own. There would be no escape, so running wasn't an option. With a world-weary but internalized sigh, Dirac knew his own shopping would have to wait just a little longer while he helped this latest group of tourists, wishing the whole while that they left him alone while he was off the clock. End of story. Story number three, A Different Kind of Magic, written by Adept Bubbles. We had found them quite by accident, a muted world nearly invisible to our eyes, a world loaded to bursting with that poisonous element, 
Iron. Even a small amount could incapacitate a less mage, rocking the flow of magical energy within them. And yet, this vile, impossible world, with its angry, writhing core, burning iron, harbored life. When we looked closer, we found that the creatures of this world used no magic. They had eschewed their power, abandoned it, and in its place, they worshipped iron. They constructed great monuments with it. They lived with instructions fashioned from iron and stone. They carried it with them wherever they went, tore it from the ground wherever they could, and through its corrupting influence, these savages committed unspeakable acts of violence and malice towards themselves and their world. Though difficult, we were able to extract their history through their thoughts. We were horrified by what we found. Ever since this species' inception, they had fought tooth and nail to survive. Without magic, they turned to metal. Of metal, they wrought terrible weapons, blades to slice through their enemies, chains to confine them, and projectiles such that none could hope to escape them. But inventing these weapons wasn't enough for them. They refined them, perfected them. Blades that could carve through any material. A web of chains wrapped around their world, a crude imitation of our psionic network. Projectiles that propelled themselves over continents, powerful enough to reduce entire cities to rubble. They had even invented a device able to tear apart matter itself, releasing an unstoppable tide of sound, fire, and destruction. They had used two of them on themselves, and then they built more. Enough to reduce a hundred worlds to nothing but glowing ashes. We were astounded at the fact, horrendous though it was, that these beasts had not yet wiped themselves out. Instead of destroying themselves, they pointed their weapons to the sky. They rode their projectiles on a wave of sound and fury into the void. They confined their star in a web of chains, a grand and terrible cage around which no light would escape lest they wanted it to. They created a blade sharp enough to slice through the fabric of reality itself, holding open the gashes they made with enormous rings of iron, as if to remind the universe who had wounded it so. These monsters could not be spared. Their crimes against the divine order, against magic itself, against the universe, could not be forgiven. They were abomination, a scourge that could be cleansed only by righteous fire. Our fleets were mobilized and we burned their world until nothing remained but glass and ashes. When it was done, all was silent, but still a sense of unease remained. The planet we had burned had only harbored life for a short time, not nearly long enough for life to have appeared there on its own, and especially not without magic. None of us said it, but we were all thinking the same thing. We had fouled this world by accident. It had nearly slipped by our sight. How many similar iron worlds might we have missed? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1677 The Time the Humans Took a Walk Written by Soul Untraveled Investigation Report of Human Action Plan B on reinforcements of 10 Val 7. Interview Transcript 03. Interview Officer I.O. State your name and rank for the record. Subject. 
Vilma Battlecast McDuck, second echelon warrior. Battlecast McDuck. You were involved in the final assault on Tenval Severed, correct? I was on the dropship alongside the first wave of humans when the first landed, yes. Battlecast McDuck. Can you describe the human unit that you and your warpod were attached to? Be warned, sir. They were not what we, uh, the entire galaxy had expected. That is why I am here. Bulmar Battlecast McDuck knew warriors, and humans are no warriors. Maduck was no stranger to combat and the beings who waged it, and much like the rest of the galaxy's more war-focused sentience, they found humanity's offerings to the Confederation of Worlds to be... underwhelming. He and his war pod of 64 strong under the divine command of the 4th Echelon Battle Priest, Deton Ak, had completed four combat operations with minimal casualties. Most of his pod brethren beside him had been there since they had hatched many cycles ago. They were respectable people amongst the lower caste of Vulmar society, and viewed favorably by their betters for their unwavering service to the High Queen. Humans, however, well, they were squishy for one. Their small stature speaks of a weaker strength, and their lack of digitigrade limbs hints at a slower speed. They lack any sort of natural weapons, no claws or large teeth of any kind. How such a species had survived, let alone thrived, on a death world was beyond him. In hindsight, that should have been the first clue. Still, the humans should be commended for their bravery, no matter how foolish it was. In volunteering to reinforce the flagging Confederation forces locked in a losing battle for the Ten-Volt system was in a virtual death sentence. So the question was... What was the human doing here with the rock throwers and useless squishy bodies? When he pointed this out to his fellow pod brethren, it caused much amusement as they cleaned their glaive carbines, both eager and anxious for the coming battle. One of his pod brothers chortled and said, I heard something about that actually. Turns out the humans evolved on something called a pursuit predator. They would literally walk their prey to death. This brought about another bout of laughter. Maduck knew warriors, so how foolish he thought for a warrior to fight by walking. Who are we? A creature of dark angular metal snarled perched atop a catwalk in a confederate transport hangar bay. Its voice warped and distorted, hellish and evil. Drop troopers! Drop troopers! They backed the demonic horde. Their odd slug throwers thrust into the air in a ravenous celebration of what was to come. And what do we do? The monstrous biped bent at the waist, bellowing down to his men. The venomous sneer heard even through his helmet's crackling microphone. Kill! 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 The Terran demons pumped their fists in time with their chant as a reciting some hellish prayer. Let's take him to church! Helljumpers! Hooah! The horde roared their refrain in perfect thunderous unison. The human leader's armored fist clanged against his waist as he tilted his head back and let out a bone-chilling cackle, surrounding by his horde of cheering killers. And Madoc and his warpod standing, Reed cowering at the rear of the hangar. Well, no one was laughing anymore. Drop troopers, can you explain what these are? Before Tenval 7, I would have told you that they were criminally insane or societal outcasts, quite literally ejected from their ships in low orbit, like refuse to die in the battlefield below. 
And what would you tell me now? I would tell you that I was half right. The orbit jumper dropships was, Madoc decided, an affront to aerospace engineering. What kind of self-respecting sentient species would pack over 20 troops shoulder to shoulder in a box clearly designed for half that number? Strap on a few chemical engines, weld on a couple ancient bolt throwers, then send them hurtling down to a planet's atmosphere. On purpose. Well, the humans, of course. All passengers be advised we will be within range of Galactic Power's space defense grid on 10 vel 7 in T minus 5 minutes. The primitive vehicle lurched to the side as it hurtled towards the planet below. The small arms stowed in the overhead racks rattled and lights flickered. The orbit jumper's engines rose to a howl, deafening, even through Madruk's steeled helmet. Hey, Scare One of the humans, Sergeant Morgan, according to the nameplate on his armor, called him over to open conlink. You'd think the siege breaker warpods of yours took out those planetary anti-air cannons. Vilmar's siege breakers are amongst the best in the Confederation of Worlds has to offer, human. If they cannot defeat those cannons, your primitive weapons and vehicles had little hope for. Wait, Madrak cocked his helmet aside. Did you just address me as Scare Bear? It's cause your old battle cast types look like a bipedal insectoid teddy bears. The human chuckled, even as the orbit jumper lurched again. Out of context, you're all a fecking nightmare fuel. Madak could hear a snort over the channel. Uh, no offense. Chuckles from the rest of the human troopers trickled in over the comms. Most amusing, Madak stated flatly. For fleshy bone maggots with delusions of grandeur. A pregnant pause. No offense. That, for some reason that was lost on Volmore, had the humans roaring in laughter. Especially Sergeant Morgan. <laughs> oh, so the teddy bear actually has teeth. Madak went to respond when the lights flipped blood red and everyone was thrown violently against their restraints. The pilot's voice cut through the engine's deafening roar as the maneuvered thrusters kicked in hard. Incoming fire in the planet's surface. Everyone hang on to your butts, conducting evasive maneuvers. Bloody hell, Sergeant Morgan snarled, his harness creaking beneath the strength of his gloved fist. The Vulmar around them trilled in distress as the G-forces spiked, pressing them into their seats painfully, the air being crushed from their lungs. Hey, Scarebear, what the feck? Madak stared at the human sergeant in disbelief, shocked that he seemed relatively unaffected by the intense gravitational force pressing down upon them. I thought you said that your siege-breaker warpods were the best. Those fecking guns aren't taken out at all. We're going to die. One of the Valmar battlecasts managed to wail through its compressed lungs. Over the comms, the entire human squad let out a collective groan. Oh, quit your whining, you pansy! Sergeant Morgan exclaimed, manipulating his helmet comlink. Helljumper actual! Helljumper actional! This is Helljumper 7-1! Our transports are under heavy plasma flak from the planet's surface! Helljumper 7-1, this is Helljumper actual. We're pretty fecking away. Planetary scans just came in. Belmar's siegebreaker forces appear to have been routed. Seems the poor bastards didn't even manage to land before they were blasted out of the air. Every trooper, human and Vulmar, was struck silent. Madak closed his eyes and leaned his head back against his seat. 640 of the Valmar monarchy's best, armed with some of the Confederate's most advanced stealth systems, and they couldn't even touch the ground. What chance did 64 Valmar and a hundred and something squishy humans in a flying box have? It was over. Fuck it! came a gruff sigh from the Sergeant Morgan. Every being on the dropship looked over as the human keyed his comlink. Hey boss man, are you gonna make the call or should I? 
Morgan, uh, fine. Just shut up and have you and your people pull up their big boy pants. The voice on the other side sighed. Execute plan B. Something in the air about the human drop troopers shifted. A weight that seemed to scratch at the back of Maduck's neck, setting his flight or fight instincts alight. His fellow Volmar leaned as far away from the human sitting beside them as their restraints would allow. A knees nipped at Maduck's ears and sharp and gleeful as if the squishy human sitting beside them had suddenly been replaced by uncaged predators. What was Plan B? Nothing in official documents provided to the Confederation of World's War Council detailed such an outline. The plan was rejected by the Vilmar and other commanders involved in the initial planning phase. Too risky, a waste of resources and warriors. According to the battle priest Etnak, who was at the meeting, he thought the human's proposal to be an outrageous joke, a fit of lunacy on the human's part. Was it? Oh, it absolutely was, but, uh, it worked. What happened next? <laughs> what do you think? The Volmar watched on the equal parts of confusion and trepidation. As the humans unharnessed and stood up, their mag boots anchoring them to the floor under the orbital jumpers' evasive maneuvers as they gathered their equipment in a practiced, methodical manner. Medak spotted Sergeant Morgan strapped firmly into an exoskeleton reinforced by plates of camouflage composite and what appeared to be retro thrusters. March over to the orbit jumper's ramp controls. What do you think you're doing? Morgan looked back and punched the ramp seal release. Plan B. The ramp unsealed and sucked groan quickly drowned out by the howling wind as orange stardust from the Tenville star system's thin atmosphere spilled into the troop compartment buffeting the Vilmar clinging to the restraints. Just outside the ramp, rust-tinted void stretched out into infinity, and below them lay Tenville 7, the massive planet's horizon line illuminated by the local star peeking over the thick atmosphere. We're 18,000 clicks above the planet's surface. What exactly do you expect to do from here? Maduck cried over the screaming wind when snarl of orbit jumpers injured. Off in the near distance, a ball of sickly green plasma violently burst into a massive cloud of death. Sergeant Morgan didn't even blink before he burst into laughter as the transport tumbled sideways to avoid the plasma flak. Tenville 7, spinning wildly outside the ramp behind him. The Vulmar groaned in pain as they were thrown around the seats and their bodies crushed beneath the intense high-G force maneuvers. Once they leveled out, Sergeant Morgan asked, Scarebear, has no one told you exactly why we humans had never developed capital ships before? Maduck coughed, chest still heaving from the G-Force pressure. Um, no. In fact, no one else really knew either. Every time the humans' military representative would show up to a confederation meeting, they would be either disregarded or, as more often is the case, laughed out of the room like an impudent child trying to join the adults as they talked. You, Valmar, you have your fancy stealth barges. The Wallachs have their over-engineered, overcompensating battleships. Sergeant Morgan roared over the howling wind. But we got our armored infantry. We got our orbit jumpers. We got our skybreaker railguns. We got our drop troopers. Hoorah! Barked Sergeant Morgan's men and women as they lined up in front of the door. Bulky rifles in hand and bloodlust spilling out into the void. You all may have mastered space combat centuries ago, Sergeant Morgan bade, his vicious grin audible even over the comms, but ain't no one who knows exoplanetary warfare like we do. Bewildered, Madak asked, 
640 of our best couldn't knock out those guns. What can just a hundred of you hope to do? We do what we do best, Sergeant Morgan laughed, then turned to his troopers. All right, ladies and gentlemen, go take a walk. After action report of human action plan B on reinforcements of 10 Vol 7. Total Confederation forces, 768. Valmar forces, 640. Valmar slate, 598. Valmar wounded, 42. Human forces, 128. Humans slain, 2. Humans wounded, 34. Total Galactic Power Forces, 15,000 estimated. GP Troops slain, 3,531 estimate. GP Troops captured, 898. Galran slain, 2,458 estimate. Galran captured, 1,226. Objectives, disable four flak batteries on Northern Hemisphere, three guns disabled, partial success. Disable four flak batteries on Southern Hemisphere, two guns disabled, partial success. Capture Complex Rhine, successful. Capture Complex Qualder, successful. Other actions taken. Eliminated Galran War Marshal. Eliminated Galran Lieutenant War Marshal. Eliminated Galran System Secretary. Conclusion. Numerical error. Investigation initiated. After action report. Addendum. Investigation results. Numerical error rectified. Add 211 to the Galactic Power Casualty Numbers. Add capture of Galactic Power's Handelbrush. Combat hover platform blueprints to other actions taken. Additional notes. In future exoplanetary operations, recommended get out of the way and let the humans go for a walk. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1678. The Debt Repaid. Written by Ruby Spicer. Finglui, Miglaunath, Cthulhu, Rulia, Wugar Nagel, Ftagan. Finglui, Miglaunath, Cthulhu, Rulia, Wugar Nagel, Ftagan. Finglui, Miglaunath, Cthulhu, Rulia, Wugar Nagel, Ftagan. It was the chant that had been heard across the multiverse, or at least the ones familiar with the tentacle faced being and his skin. They had been so thankful, but not in his people that Cthulhu had not been heard nor seen of for eons. He lived on only in tales, songs, legends. To the current generations, he was little more than a myth, a deep, to terrorize their darkest dreams and frighten hatchlings into good behavior, an unreal being to any who lived. Until now. Mazi and his men walked to what would surely be their deaths. He wondered how his people would take news that Cthulhu existed in living memory again. This was a small planet, in a small system, but nearly perfect for all forms of life. And though the Terrans had allies that came to their defense, eventually Panoth's forces broke through those defenses and came to land on Earth itself. A perimeter had been quickly established against ground resistance, and all had looked well. Victory was in their grasp. They needed only reach out and take it to secure this little backwater system. After all, the other planets had little more than exploratory bases. Most of what lay beyond was puny beings called Jupiter was resource-gathering bases. They had barely colonized the inner planets and, in fact, most seemed reluctant to leave their system at all. Yes, an easy victory. There were some humans taken prisoner, civilians, but strong-looking. 
They'd had small weapons on their persons, but each, as least as one's Panoth had taken the trouble to supervise, had surrendered these weapons. He sensed nothing of deception in them, but instead an enduring patience, a hopeful watchfulness. They knew they would suffer, but they were completely assured that they would be saved. But by who? Or what? Their allies had been destroyed, and there was no chance of getting out of the message to get more. Perhaps they mean to destroy themselves. Some planets have tried that. An officer suggested it, but Penoth waved it away. If they were going to go that route, they would have done it before now, or we would have seen some sign of it being set up. Perhaps a weapon we've yet to uncover, no. They would have used it all as well, surely. The speculation went on for some time, until the idea of questioning the prisoners came to mind. Sure, with some persuasion, they would tell all that was necessary, and more besides. But they all gave the same answer, in a tongue that reached into Penoth's guts and twisted hard. These were not words, not speech, but rather sounds, glutteral, wild, slapped together, and what some deranged child playing at a language construction might consider to be such. Chanted, prayed, screamed, and only one word in the whole mess made any sense. Finglui, Miglaunath, Cthulhu, Rulia, Vugarnagal, Ftagan. Briefly, very briefly, they could sense connection. As each human spoke those words, it was as if they were connecting mentally to someone or something else. Like a spark that quickly went out when you looked at it. Once they sensed it, the feeling disappeared from their minds and couldn't be felt again. The prisoners were returned to their cells, which echoed suddenly with the sentence that struck them with all the growing sense of fear. They did not understand what was being said, except the one name, Cthulhu. The fear that struck them was only temporary, although the words played over and over in all the minds of those who'd been heard them. Clearly, the humans had worshipped him. But how? How, when he had not been seen so long? He is older than this planet, but it's not impossible that he may have... The thought cut itself short. Cthulhu's influence was extensive. Across the universe, there was not one soul living who did not at least know of him. But it was senseless. That was simply part of the deal when it came to a being like him. The worship would do them no good. But perhaps the madness it were clearly bringing out would shield their minds from the damage that being conquered would do to their mental state. As they were discussing this in the conference room, Penoth felt a sudden blow to his psyche, as hard as if he had been a sucker punched in the back of the head, and it took several minutes for him to struggle to his feet from the pain of it. From down the hall, he could see another of his men in the same condition, and he rushed, or rather, shambled to check on him. But before he could get there, a bellowing watery roar sounded out the outside, with his psychic abilities locked suddenly off from the pain. All Penoth could manage to do was look through the window towards the ocean. And from the water, a monstrosity, a colossus, a... The image that he had feared as a child, seen in ancient text, doodled in boredom in the history of the multiverse class, that green form... That head with two enormous and ugly eyes, the face with wriggling, massive tentacles, the wings leathery and spreading. That image was now rising from the water before his very eyes. 
the last thing Pernoth heard in his mind before this living legend went on to destroy their defenses, their weapons, their ships, was one small sentence in his mind. Three little words that had on his mind all the impact of a ship crashing into one's head from orbit. Earth is redacted. Somehow, Pernoth and a handful of his men had managed to survive the carnage wrought by the myth come to life. That Cthulhu. There were words of praise uttered by the humans, thanking the Mighty One, praising him for saving them in the darkest hour from the evil invaders. The creature had retreated back into the ocean, and it was here that Penoth had expected to die. He had thought that the humans would almost immediately execute him and his kind, but to his great surprise, they did not even think of doing it. Great Cthulhu decide your fate. It was all that Penoth could get from the god outside his cell. Now he and all that remained of his army were being marched down a dock towards the sea. All around them the chanting went on. All around them the... Penoth blinked, and suddenly he was surrounded by complete and utter blackness. He was compelled forward at a speed that was impossible without the aid of a ship. And yet, here he was, doing it all the same. Not until he passed the star did it occur to him that he was in space. And then, a second later... What he had never seen before, but what he had felt with a bizarre certainty, was his home planet. He moved onward. Suns, stars, black holes he passed without caring. But the planets brought a strange joy. Company, minds to connect to, to thrive off of. He could not stand the feeling of loneliness between them, but there were always more planets nearby. Until there weren't. Time passed. The planets grew further and further apart. The suns collapsed, turned red and white, and finally went out altogether. The life he had felt so eager to connect to dwindled more and more and more, until they too finally went out. There was not a single soul left for him to find company with, not one mind to connect to within many trillions of light years. The black holes were all that remained. Anger. Grief. And then madness. He was furious that what had brought so much joy could so thoroughly be erased. He was sorrowful at the loss of that joy. And finally, pounding in his hearing organs, headaches, the likes of which he had never felt before in all the use of his psychic abilities. Whispers, scratches, hallucinations that faded the second he got close to them. Please, please let it be over. I would rather die than go on like this. But go on, he did, his plea audible to no one but himself. Then he did not die. I could not die. But by this point, the booming sound had no meaning to Penoth. Even the black holes began to explode and fade away. Eventually, first company, and then sanity, and then the light itself had abandoned him. Nothing in the known universe could slay him. No weapon could touch him. No mind could battle his own. Nothing could possibly end his life and save him from this eternal misery. He raged. He screamed. He tore open space, hoping to find a weak point between the walls of space-time. But he kept moving with no success on that head. Always hoping that he would meet or see someone or something. But there was no one. Nothing. Except that last black hole. The first he had seen in... Uh, in... Uh, who knew how long? 
He had made for it, feeding the pull of it, seeing the light of the radiation it was burning off. Grateful to feel anything after so long alone, with only the freezing dark to keep him company. Trillions on trillions on trillions of times the size of the last sun he had seen was his black hole. And yet, it still did not end his existence. Deep into his darkness he fled, hoping still to find relief within it, hoping still that something would be here with him, that someone would connect, even if it were only for a moment. Nothing. Nothing happened. All that lay around him was the eternal swirling, that pulsating nothingness, that poisonous void. He was alone again, and the mote of joy fell from seeing light again was long past. It was almost worse than never having felt the little happiness to begin with. And then, there was an explosion. Burning, everything burning, atmosphere, yes, that was the word, and then air, oxygen rich, the greenery everywhere. But above all, there was the bellowing of the scaled beasts. He hit the water and sent up a shower of water and rock and dirt. But even here in the blackness of the deep waters, there was still life. He slept and woke and built and slept and woke and built again. The flow of time he could not sense now. But with life around him, the minds, however dim, he could connect to. The sheer joy of having anyone, anything to speak with at all, even if they could not understand a word that he put into their minds. They had not existed when he first came to this world. But every time he slept, there were more of them. His fall had caused a change, but most of it he did not see. He slept in Rulia, in that palace of stone, and every time he woke, the people, the humans, grew in number. And when he was finally able to speak to a human and receive a reply in return, he wept for sheer joy of it. They reached out, they wanted to speak to him, they were in awe of him. When they began to learn of the loneliness he had suffered for eons beyond count. In his greatest darkness, they rescued him. He would never be alone again, and he owed now a debt that could never be repaid. Penalth jumped backwards. He found himself back on a pier again. Wind, waves, humans, birds, sky, water. Then the wood beneath his feet shifted, and he was once more in the darkness. He screamed as he moved forward at a much higher rate than the speed of light. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1679 Monday Before Taco Tuesday Written by Svanya Bardson Stephen J. Steyer III missed his old life. Humanity's ambassador to the Galactic Combine, he had been plucked from his position as a professor of linguistics at Kenyon College, Ohio. He knew he had to follow along to make nice, smile without showing teeth, and accept the award graciously. He also knew that it was undeserved. As the speaker of the Combine read off these heroic deeds, Stephen wanted to curl up in a ball and disappear. He hadn't done anything they said he had. The Honorable Ambassador Steyer from Terror is the true definition of a hero. Stephen felt his stomach lurch. Don't read the whole thing, he pleaded in his thoughts. Ambassador Steyer showed great courage and the highest ideals of combined culture. 
when he stopped a terrorist plot right here in the capital. Not only did he incapacitate and detain all seven terrorists until the authorities could pick them up, but he did so without any loss of life. In addition, while fighting for his own life and the lives of those other ambassadors, he disarmed their explosive device and contained the biocontaminant they, they wished to disperse. For his heroic act, Ambassador Stephen James Steyer III is awarded the Star of Luminance, the highest military or civilian honor the Combine can offer. The speaker motioned him forward and laid a long ribbon bearing a diamond star that shone with its own inner light over his shoulders. Stephen gave a slow bow and raised a hand to touch the speaker's manipulated tentacle in the Combine equivalent of a handshake. The ambassadors in the chamber cheered as Stephen let himself be led away from the podium. The ceremony was the only thing on the agenda for the day, so the ambassadors were ready to start filing out. Stephen only noticed once he'd been led there that he was positioned right outside of the main doors with a security detail. He spent the next interminable hour smiling and touching hands, claws, tentacles, paws and manipulators that could be compared to no earthly thing. The last exit was in Tula, the ambassador from Jinsua, an eight-limbed, eight-eyed, quadrupedal, orange-furred creature Stephen considered a friend. Come, Steve. We'll have a drink in my quarters. Sure. Steve reached to pull the medal off, but Antula stopped him. You must not take it off in public, she said, as it would be an insult to the Combine. Does that mean I have to wear it all the time? Only while on official business. Even heroes get to have a private life. Antula winked with the four eyes in the side closest to Stephen, in quick series. Have I ever told you how disturbing that is? You have. Why do you think I do it? Stephen leaned into her, bumping his shoulder into her side. Thanks for being my friend, even if you're mean. Oh, please. I tease you with my eyes, but the way you bipeds walk, if I hadn't been around the council for so long time, it would still make me dizzy with fright. Well, uh, get me drunk enough and I'll be a quadruped too. He put a hand on the bristle-like fur of her arm. Speaking of, I'm ready to get drunk enough to forget all of this. Her quarters seemed larger than his because she had no kitchen. Her status as a senior member of the ambassadorial council meant that she had staff to handle things like cooking and cleaning. Where his quarters had a small kitchen, she had a wet bar, at which she was already fixing drinks. Alcohol for you, Quirinol for me. She handed him a heavy rock glass with an amber liquid of ice. He took a tentative sip. This is smooth. Where's it from and how do I get some? It is a carrion distilled beverage, Kasakatl, if I'm pronouncing it right. She sipped her own drink, a murky pink. The ambassador of Karata will bring some as a gift when he visits. It's the number two export from their homeworld, right after Carbon-14. I'll have to remember that, Stephen lifted the medal off, setting it on the table beside him. A shudder of shame came over him. You have to talk to me, Steve. Tell me what got you down. I'll need another drink first, he said, before I'm ready to embarrass myself like that. 
After small talk over several drinks and light snacks, Stephen had removed his jacket and rolled up his sleeves. And Tula stretched out on the soft couch and he joined her, leaning against her. Her fur was an odd combination of stiff and soft. Talk to me. Andy, 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 oh. You're gonna hate me. I'm a coward, not a hero. I could never hate you, she said. You're the only creature with a higher body temperature than me that'll snuggle like this, he chuckled. Okay, fine. I can't just, uh, tell it, but I'll answer your questions. The first terrorist, the Ululian, how did he end up temporarily blinded? Oh, the gecko thing, Stephen sighed. I was cooking, getting some stuff ready for the next day's dinner. We were cooking for the following day. Is that normal thing for Terrans? Sometimes. When there's stuff that can be done ahead of time. Anyway, it was Monday on the human calendar, so I was making salsa and chips for Taco Tuesday. Stephen could tell that she had more questions, but she held back. He continued. He broke open my door and came straight for me. I dropped my peanut butter sandwich and reached for a knife that I'd been slicing onions with. He tried to snatch it with his sticky tongue, but ended up getting my sandwich instead. While he was busy looking like a dog trying to get the peanut butter out of his tongue, the oil for the chips caught fire. I moved the pan off the hob and grabbed a bag of baking soda that I keep on hand for this sort of thing. Problem was, I still had a knife in my hand, and at least a third of it ended up as dust in the air. I didn't think about the fact that the Lulians can't blink, and he didn't think about the peanut butter stuck to his tongue. He reflexively lacked his eyes to clear the dust and, uh, began to scream. Did you get the fire out? Yeah, barely, but I forgot to turn off the hob. Who came next? The two Mechlians. They circled around to the kitchen entrance, and don't know why, but since they remind me of giant slugs, I poured a line of salt across the entryway on the side of the kitchen. I was just lucky that it worked, because I was frozen in fear for a moment. When they touched the salt, they recoiled in pain. I ran around to the other side and blocked them in with an arc, leaving them trapped in a kind of crooked circle of salt. Meanwhile, the gecko had gone from screaming to crashing blindly around the flat. Stephen finished his drink and held out out for a refill. He figured that now he was on a roll, he may as well finish the story. I ran to the panic room and pushed the button to open it, and the four lizard guys in security uniforms ran in. I was so glad to see them, I dropped the knife and made straight for them. When one of them raised a weapon at me, I realized the uniforms didn't fit them well at all. The panic room was open, and the gecko had already stumbled in there. The one with the pistol motioned me away from the panic room, with the other three taking up space that meant that I had to squeeze past the slugs into the kitchen. One of the lizardmen had a box in his hands, and it started to beep. He threw it at me, and when I stepped back, I knocked over the blender full of habanero salsa. Some of it spilled on the hob and began to smoke. The smoke was blinding. It felt like chili oil had been rubbed directly into my eyes. The device the lizard fellow had thrown at me was still beeping, and I'm still not sure why, but I picked it up and dropped it in a basin full of soapy dishwater. There was a shot fired, and the hole burned into the cabinet near my head. That's when I grabbed the nearest thing at hand, 
a half-full blender of saucer, and threw it at them. The saucer sprayed in a wide arc, hitting all four of them close enough to the face to send them into a coughing and gagging fits. I was still half-blind from the chilly smoke, and the lizard guys were scrambling to find their way out. The slugs had forced themselves across the salt when the smoke got too much for them and ended up heading towards the panic room where the gecko was still thrashing about. The lizard guys picked up a direction as well. I guess they thought that it was a way out. As soon as they were in, I hit the emergency panel again, closing the panic room from the outside, and then stumbled back into my kitchen to find milk to wash my eyes out with, and to turn off the hob. Stephen drained another drink, unaware that Ntula had been diluting them with water to the point that they barely had any color. He set the glass down and pointed at the medal. I... I didn't earn that. I, I don't deserve it, Andy. You probably think I'm pathetic now, right? Not at all. You ended up in that situation through no fault of your own. You adapted, you survived, and you saved a lot of lives. She put an arm around his shoulders. You deserve that medal, but, uh, I have a question. What? Uh, what is Taco Tuesday? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1680. Story number one. Lone Star Republic, written by Triple Seven Jackpot. I nervously stand at the shuttlecraft lads. My speciality in extraction of carbon-based materials has finally earned me a promotion to manage a territory of my own. The catch is relocation to a world controlled by the Lone Star Republic, or the LSR. I know several of my rivals passed on the opportunity for that reason. My career has brought me in contact with many formidable personalities, but this is the first time I feel truly out of my depth. I hear many things about Terrans, but the LSR has a particularly terrifying reputation. The rest of the galaxy already considers Terrans ultimate warriors prone to overkill, and apparently Terrans feel the same way about the LSR. And that is why the LSR's independence charter includes conditions for a military alliance with the Terrans. I do not quite know what to expect, but I know to stay on my guard. Right as I enter the shuttle port, I cannot help but notice the gigantic sign reading, Welcome y'all! And the flags everywhere. This is not like an embassy flying many different flags as a symbol of diplomacy. All the flags are identical with a single design of two stripes and one star. Many of the people here dress very differently from other Terrans. Most notably, several have enormous hats and ornate footwear of all different colors. But just about everybody wears blue pants for some reason. Before I can fully take in my surroundings, I see a particularly big human holding a sign with my name on it. Thank the gods, that must be my contact. Time to introduce myself Hopefully, I'll be able to survive the encounter. Hello, I am Exegel Styrsnock. Are you here for me? Now the big human is baring all of his teeth and moving towards me. Oh no, I must have triggered a predator instinct. He's about to eat me alive. To my astonishment, the big human enthusiastically greets me. Hey, yeah, I'm here for you. Welcome to Alamo. My name is Jeff Thornton. Right this way, partner. I follow him bewildered, but at least I'm in the right place. 
Jeff leads me outside to a gigantic vehicle, clearly designed for off-road use. The back portion appears missing, but Jeff clarifies that it is just part of the vehicle's design. As Jeff helps me climb into the passenger seat, I immediately notice the kinetic rifle hanging in the back window. Wait, is this human with the OSR military? This assignment just became a much more complex. I keep staring at the weapon as Jeff enters the driver's side. Mr. Thornton, what is your military rank? I want to address you properly. What? Uh, I am not part of the military. Uh, and you can just call me J Jeff. Jeff quickly follows my gaze to the rifle, and his face visibly changes in realization. Oh, that. It's just my truck gun. Bring it everywhere I drive, j just in case. Things are a little different here in the LSR. Owning military-grade arms is considered a basic legal right of citizens. Many other people you meet here are probably carrying a concealed pistol. Everyone carries weapons, so the rumors are true. No wonder my colleagues passed on the offer. Hold up. That means the tall tales about massive feasts called uh, barbecues and the pyrotechnic displays that take up a whole sky might be real too. If I can keep from getting shot, that might actually be a great experience. Just as I begin to contemplate the possibilities, Jeff quizzically asks, Have you ever fired one? Jeff's question instantly snaps me back into reality. Of course not. Where I come from, even touching a weapon is a crime unless you are in the military. Jeff raises his eyebrows and asks, When we get over yonder a ways, you want to give it a try? We have enough time before the Independence Day fireworks and a barbecue. The offer completely shocks me. Without a moment's hesitation, I give the answer. Hell yeah, partner. End of story. Story number two. What is it you want, human? Written by Dragonson04. We were victorious. My fleets reduced to wreck and ruin, still managed to win the war. I commend my admirals and captains and every last soldier who lost their lives in that war. By my great name, they shall all be remembered and honored. On the capital world of my empire, now fully at peace, we celebrated like never before. All manner of races took their pleasure and leisure in the way that they desired. Certain liberties were granted in regards to public celebrations and drunkenness, as it was too much trouble to try and arrest all the revelers. It was just past midday on the fifth day of celebrations, with designs on the least thirty more to come, that I found myself walking along the edge of a great water of the capital world to try and have a moment to myself. On a craggy shoreline, in a blown-out circle of rock, likely from an orbital weapon, lay a single human male, stretched out and apparently asleep, on an odd piece of portable furniture. The humans had been invaluable in the war. They fought and died in the billions to defend the worlds of the Empire. Even though their home world was never touched or even threatened, they fought for all of us. I approached, as I had never met a human in person before. Somehow, he heard me. He woke up, turned his head, and was staring at me with an intense gaze before I had taken four steps towards him. I was dressed in my full regalia, no one in the Empire would have failed to bow to me. But this human stayed where he was. His head lazily rolled back to facing the water, completely unimpressed. I walked around the portable furniture and stood next to his left side, as was proper when honoring another. 
Human, I said loudly. Mm hmm? The human grunted. You fought in the war, yes? I questioned. Mm hmm. We was all he replied, but it sounded like an affirmation. I am Grand Emperor Zelthan, the Magnificent. I grant you a boon as a survivor of the war and as a human. Make your wish known, and it shall be. I promise to remember and honor all the soldiers of the war, and you seem to be a good example of humanity to start with. The human exhaled from his nose, as if he was annoyed. Uh, my only wish, your Imperial Majesty, uh, is that you take five steps to your right. Uh, you're blocking my sunlight. End of story. Story number three. A thesis on galactic weaponry, written by Flaming Raven. There are many forms of weaponry that have been categorized in our galaxy. From the primitive guns that use explosives to propel projectiles, to the advanced atomizers of the Eleni. But my thesis is on the most brutal and barbaric kind of weaponry that our galaxy has ever seen in its history. I am, of course, talking about the weapons of the Terrans, or humans, as they prefer. Terran weapons started as most other civilizations did, with sticks, rocks, and sharp pieces of metal. They utilized firearms all through their history, much like any other Senate race. But, unlike the Eleni, who focused on weaponizing physics, unlike the Cax, who focused on their own biological weaponry, such as the Cax bio-rifle, even my people, the Yunari, developed energy weapons that fired plasma. The Terrans focused on something else. They believed that there was three central laws to physics. Law 1, a body at rest persists in that state of rest, and a body in motion remains in constant motion along a straight line, unless acted upon by external force. Law 2. A body's acceleration is directly proportional to the force exerted on it, and is in the same direction as the force. Law 3. To every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So, in the void of space, their original propellant for all their weaponry was ineffective. We all know their solution. We saw the solution during the Soul War, as the Terrans call it. We of the Senate call it something else. The War of Blood. You see, humans believe that in order to be able to attack in space, they would need the energy weapons or even missile systems. They developed weapons that fired razor-sharp depleted uranium rods at their target. Then they made them compact, fit into a foot soldier, and what did they call this new breed of weapon? Turns out Terrans have a slang word for them. Staplers. The closest word I can find to translate is a zliglit, a piece of metal meant to fasten things together, or pierce through just about every single kind of armored plate we have. I've seen the hollows, cacks fastened to walls, bleeding from multiple rods pinning them to the bulkheads. A vid of a single rod, I repeat, a single Rod, entering one side of an Alani dreadnought and piercing the reactor core. Recently, humans have made these staple guns even more compact, the size of pistols. They are a cruel invention that earned terror a disdain of many, but they are a very effective weapon. That is why, esteemed members of the Yunarian Ecclesiarchy, I put forth not only this thesis, but a proposal to begin trade and dialogue with the Terrans, if there is to be a war, 
then we ought to be on the winning side. For once. Deacon Jib Bib Dip. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1681. Story number one. Zaphod brings his heritage gun to gun day. Written by Slow AD 2584. It was a bit of a tradition. A way to blow off steam at a bar at the edge of the proving grounds, high above the galactic plane. Several other alien races participated. It was cool and always interesting. It was called Gun Day, and the point of it was to show and tell primitive handguns from each species past. They would O and R amongst themselves, and even go and do some shooting practice in one of the large cargo bays that broke down freighters the humans used. Chuck Yeager, the primary test pilot for the human contingent at the Proving Grounds, had his favorite antique, Old Bessie, a truly ancient Colt 1911.45 that he had in his family for, geez, was it really 48 generations? A testament to its design and the well-oiled gun still worked perfectly. After all these years, guns like these were called heritage guns under a special treaty article and were allowed to be carried on vessels out into space, as they were important cultural relics. Or something. The 1911 was a favorite of the aliens at the Proving Grounds. While a simple gunpowder-propelled lead slug weapon, it was a stopping power, the muzzle energy of this unassuming device that impressed everyone still to this day. Tell me, uh, Jaeger, said one of the Klingons, not what they called themselves. Again, this is engineer nerdy references. One of the more like and militaristic species of the hegemony, thus the moniker. My, the need for this gun, over the other more common relics such as the 9mm. Nigger loved telling the story. Well, great-granddaddy used to say, the history books agreed that during World War II, the sidearms of the U.S. Army before the 1911 were 9mm. And they had the unfortunate flaw in that they were not able to drop a man with one shot. In a moment when the main weapon jammed, and the soldier had to rely on his sidearm to stay alive. That's what the 1911 was engineered to meet. To just need one shot in the heat of the moment to utterly drop a man, even one junked up on PCP or whatever stimulants the enemy used back then. The Klingons nodded in approval. They had little doubt the handgun would drop any of them in one shot as well. It was just that much oomph going on. They then showed off their heirloom gun, the Needler. It was a gauze weapon, using strong electromagnetics to propel a swarm of slivers down the barrel. The rather ingenious thing about it was the ammunition. It was a solid slug of metal of a particular crystalline piezoelectric matrix. When the hammer struck the back and when it fired, a 0.5mm outer layer of the slug would shatter off around the long circumference of the drum. Hundreds of razor-sharp needles of metal that were all accelerated down the gun to the target once freed. It was messy, inaccurate, and brutal. Pretty much like how the Klanons liked it. Oh, and the shattering of needles meant that they were red-hot as well when fired. The ancient weapon was used when we were warring factions on our, our world. Raiding each other for territory, or other. The needles were collected and used as currency for barter, meaning that the factions most shot to hell 
were able to repurchase themselves back up quickly. This weapon single-handedly spurred our technological development. They stated proudly. One of the aliens, a spider-centaur-looking thing, showed off their gun next. It was a whip-line caster, and it made everyone uneasy. Its bullets were monomolecular filaments, able to cut through anything at a molecular level. The gun looked like a kind of crossbow, but the arcing arms were the gun barrel. When fired, it sent out whip lines as horizontal filaments in rapid-fire twangs, shredding any target downfield. It had the interesting bonus ability, beyond what was more common projectiles and laser could achieve, the whoop part of it. Due to its nature, it could hook around corners, over cover, around door frames and windowsills by snagging and whooping around, shredding anything hiding behind. Nowhere to hide. It was awesome to watch in the firing range, though, but it was also horrible to clean up afterwards. Never nice to have monofilaments piled up on the floor. That never goes well. But Zaphod walked in with his heritage gun. The party really started. Zaphod Beeblebrox, nicknamed because he had two heads and three arms, was a member of the most technologically advanced species in the hegemony. They were literal hegemons, and as ancient handgun was more high-tech than anything else presented. This little darling was from our deep ancient past when, Hummer, we were sort of, Hummer. Space Buccaneers. Whoa, wait, what? Zaphod, the space pirate, Jaeger proclaimed with a huge grin while handing Zaphod a goggle blaster. Look, kid, it was a long time ago. You don't see me bringing up your Spanish Inquisition or anything, do you? Anyway, this here is a hand-pump x-ray blaster. Ha! No batteries required. Ain't she a beauty? It really did look ancient, but honestly, there wasn't much to look at. It was just a wooden grip, trigger, and a lever thing where the hand scripted. Some sort of spinny revolver cylinder, some heavy gauge wires, and a metal rod poking out the end of a flared trumpet-like barrel. It was all secured in place with hammered brass strips. It looked all the world like a flintlock blunderbuss from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, with a few steampunk additions. One of the engineers couldn't resist asking, How does it work again? Zapod shrugged. All right. I mean, there's nothing secret or classified here. How kids make these things for their elementary school science projects. The lever here in the grip is a crank squeezing the grip over and over, ratchets the drum into a spin faster and faster. The drum started to spin as Zapod had pumped it. People started to back away from him. Once the drum gets up to speed, it's ready to fire. And you can pump it up faster or slower for different levels of shot. The drum here is a simple monopolar magnet. It's a north pole only. The south magnetic pole is tucked into the center of the drum. It builds up this enormous angular momentum. And when we pull the trigger, that what actually pulled the trigger. Was he drunk? The spinning drum slammed to an immediate stop. And out of the trumpet barrel shot a neon orange donut of energy, impacting with a heavy thud on the overhead of the bar. Oops, <laughs> sorry, uh, don't worry, the blaster was designed to not call ship depressurizations. What good is punching a hole in a bounty? There would be nothing to loot, as they used to say. The engineers felt emboldened to ask further. So, uh, how does the drum stopping shoot the gun? Oh, that, uh, I guess you kids don't have any of those, do you? 
The spinning monopolar magnets with coils around it makes up an old technology called a monopolar generator. Think of it like a mechanical version of a capacitor storing insane amounts of energy as angular momentum. Pull the trigger, connect the coil to the drum, and wham! All the angular momentum of the mass gets pumped down the wires as electromagnetic energy. A literal fuckton of energy. Limited usefulness, though. It just dumps all 100% of the energy at once. Nothing held back. Limited practical uses for all things like that. The engineers looked at each other. They all clearly disagreed. Anyways, the energy gets pumped to the rod at the barrel. It's just tuned to wavelength for x-rays that get sort of vortex rolled up into a donut as it leaves the barrel. And the rest as well, uh, blammo. Wait, Yeager said, just now catching up. You said kids make these as science experiments. End of story. Story number two. How to Earn a Big Bounty from Satan, written by Glitchkey. Do you know where you are? The man asked. His immaculate suit caught the lambian glow of the ember-filled walls and almost seemed suffused with a fire all its own. The office he sat in was spacious and well-appointed. The bookcases and paintings lining the walls hardly immune to the flaming companions. The man sitting across from him looked around. His dark eyes flicked from object to object before settling back on the man in the suit, patiently waiting for an answer. I'd imagine, he said, a smile teasing at his lips, that this is hell. Would you happen to be Satan? Yes, yes, I would, Satan acknowledged, steepling his fingers in front of him as he stared at the man across from him, who had given up any pretense of neutrality and was grinning quite broadly. It would seem that you also know why you are here, rather than already receiving your due punishment. Would it happen to have anything to do with... The man drew out the sentence, tapping a hand against his knee as he tried not to laugh. How you tabulate sins. Yes, that would... Satan stopped as his voice was drowned out by laughter and waited for the man to quiet down. His fingers drummed against the desk for a few moments, and then he sighed. A breeze filled the room, and the walls fled to light, interrupting the laughter long enough for him to continue. That would be the case. You have quite an anomalous count of sins. Would you care to explain? Oh, my yes, sir. I certainly would. The man leaned back in his chair and looked around the room before his eyes settled upon an old painting. What a coincidence. Is that Zempro Gauzu? Satan looked at the painting, then back to the man who clearly already knew the answer. Yes, that is him. The man clapped his hands together. Excellent. See, he was part of the inspiration for what I did. It all started ages ago, you see. I came to a horrible realization that I was probably never going to go to heaven. A terrible thing to conclude, you know. He wiped a few tears that clearly didn't exist out of his eye, and grinned belying the action as he did so. I figured, okay, if I'm going to go to hell anyway, I should make sure that I get there in style. I uh, see, Satan said, rubbing his temples. You're not the first, but you are certainly one of the more, he sighed again, creative cases. That doesn't explain what you did, however. Right, I was getting to that. The first thing I realized was that the classic methods were off the table. 
No better way to live a short and probably miserable life than to try and become a mass murderer in a modern age, he shrugged. So I spent a while thinking, and realized that I'd probably get counted in for convincing other people to commit sins too. Even if it's at something of a discount. Yes, you do, Satan leaned forward, staring straight at the man that he was interviewing. Normally intent is accounted for here as well. However, you caused us to reevaluate our pending cases. We're going to need to adjust accordingly in the future. Anyway, he said, sitting back and gesturing across the desk. Please, continue. So yeah, I figured, okay, I can do this. The man grinned again. Seems I was right, by the way. His smile faded slightly, but the twinkle remained in his eyes. So I decided, hey, we've got this fancy new tech that connects people around the world. Is there a good way to abuse that to create sins in mass? Satan chuckled. The sound hollow even to his ears. Yes, you certainly did that. Every one of the deadly sins and a multitude besides. Committed constantly around the globe. He grimaced as he looked at some paperwork on his desk. Your final numbers are unlikely to finish tabulating anytime soon. As the sins continue to come in, congratulations. You've broken the system. The man simply sat, his grin never fading, as he waited for Satan to continue. So all of your assumptions, correct as they were, Satan paused to stare at the man. All of them led you to... To invent microtransactions, yes. Brilliant piece of work, aren't they? End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadia.